Sorry, Earl. I'm big and loud, and I fucking use profanity. I hope it's going to be okay. All right. You know I already have a guest because you just heard him talking. Uh, inappropriate Earl, back. <laughs> back for more, as Rat would say. And speaking of Rat, I'd like to give a shout-out to uh, my only sponsor, uh, Stephen Piercy's Mike Knuckles. You can uh, get a pair for yourself. I've got the Vinnie Vincent model in pink with uh, diamond-encrusted uh, diamonds. Uh, but that's another. Uh, that's a whole other thing. It's not about Stephen Piercy today, although it is 80s related. You know, if you listen to this podcast, I have my favorite singers, wrestlers, uh, musicians, uh, people from the 80s and beyond. Uh, last episode, Rowdy Roddy Piper's blowing up the charts, legendary uh, 80s wrestler. Uh, today, I've got a musician who has a incredibly long history in the la music scene uh adam gifford guys hey what's happening you know do you only talk about 80s because i it kind of reminds me of five finger death punch that uh microphone you know that band i do i don't i'm not from la too but not from the 80s listen the last uh band i got into that was new was weezer so uh oh so you haven't heard of five finger death punch then (laughs) i've heard of them but i'm not weezer uh, was about 20 years ago so anyway whatever i'm stuck in the 80s uh yeah okay i've got my paul stanley uh tour shirt i love that because kiss was the band that made me want to be in uh, hard rock and metal in the first place because you, you saw them. Yeah, I saw them when I was a little kid in Madison Square Garden on the Kiss Alive 2 tour. And um, I was in the nosebleed seats, but they were shaking the entire arena so that our seats were vibrating. Even at the back of the top of Madison Square, it was like the loudest, fucking most awesome. Every piece of pyro, I could feel the flames all the way. And then I moved to L.A. the next year, and I saw them on the Dynasty tour, which to me is really the last tour with the original members, full makeup different setup than they did the year before now freely was shooting rockets out of the top of his stock and all that and peter chris was uh, trying to keep time i love peter i think he's a great drummer i think a lot of those beats are really unique to me because he was influenced by jazz and not just hard rock i think that was a big problem in the 80s see a lot of people started going ooh ah ooh ah and they'd write songs over that and that kind of sucked as far as i'm concerned yeah, no, I know Peter was influenced by Gene Krupa, Buddy Rich. Yeah. Good jazz um, guys. Uh, I mean, I personally liked Eric Carr better. But you didn't like his drum solo in Kiss Alive 1? Uh, Come well, on. Was it his drum solo? Cla- I mean. Oh. All right, I'm not going to talk smack about Kiss. No, I. Or even the new guys who are not really members of Kiss. Well, now it's the Jewish Menudo. It's like <laughs> Tommy Thayer, who's black and blue. So I, was a, I saw black and blue playing at the Troubadour right down the street here when I was a kid back in the 80s when I was in high school. See, this is bi- why. In fact, I saw them play, check this out, Fairfax High School. And Black and Blue was a headliner, but they hadn't gotten signed. And Warrant are mostly from Fairfax High. Drummer was from Uni. They were my friends. We're we're peers. This is before Janie Lane was in the band. Warrant was a big deal on the scene because they were like the biggest high school metal band. So it was Warrant and Black and Blue at Fairfax High in the you know main auditorium. Right. Oh, the things you could do in the bathroom with girls from another school at a nice metal show. It was good times, man. Uh, Black yeah. and Blue was great. I, you know, I love them right until Gene started producing them. <laughs> Ooh, I like the first album he did with them. I don't even remember that one. I think it was their third. Nasty Nasty. Yeah. There were still some good tracks on that album, I thought. But Gene seemed to, uh, you know, like he hooked up with House of Lords and then they kind of went down. Hey, and- he wanted to call uh, uh, Van Halen, uh, what was it? Black Widow or something or Spider yeah. or something. And uh, I mean... <laughs> 
that's probably the hottest in demand uh, Kiss demo is there the Halen one uh, with the, I think they did Christine sixteen I think and, that stuff's all on YouTube these days right um, I haven't heard that one there's uh, some great demos of them on YouTube uh, mm. like they did a song called a uh, Sword and Stone. Uh, which ended up being on the Shocker soundtrack by Bonfire. It's a German. Uh, they were like a German metal band. Uh -huh. But uh, I know, I know. Not the not the American one where, where the guy had like. Oh no, no, forget about it. That's like an ACDC tribute. No, yeah, I know. Uh, but uh, on YouTube, there's the fully recorded Kiss version of Sword and Stone, and huh. it's, it's a great song. But, right on. Uh, I spend sometimes I will go on YouTube and dig up old shit, like just for, you know. Well, it's great. I mean, you know, you think with Kiss's box set, which I thought was average. I haven't even checked out the box set. Okay. I haven't bought an album since uh, whatever was the Revenge. Which was... Uh, Why would I buy the rest of their... I've heard the stuff. Three songs uh, co-written by the great Vinnie Vincent. Oh, yeah. You're a big Vinnie Vincent fan, aren't you? That's funny because... I'm obsessed um, with him. And Slaughter 2 by... Uh, I didn't like that song they wrote about him called Burning Bridges. <laughs> I, you know okay so you like what, what is it uh oh damn it you just went out of my head never reply i want no substitute that's the first vinnie vincent album robert fleischman yeah that singer before mark slaughter where he sings so high original singer uh right before i don't know if he was the original singer but he was in journey right before steve perry Really? He, I think he co-wrote Wheels in the Sky. Wow. Okay. I didn't know that. I a do lot of like people Journey, don't. too. What a bummer. You go from possibly Journey right before they pop uh -huh. to the Vinnie Vincent invasion. And that was right after they kicked him out of Kiss, right? I think he did Creatures of the Night tour or something and well, looked it up. And well, then they kicked him out and he did that album. There was Twisted. Twi -twi 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 -twist. <laughs> but Bob Rock is a hell of a producer. Well, Bob Rock was a drummer. Yeah, but he's also an incredible producer now, right? Isn't that the same Bob no, Rock? No, no, it's different Bob Rock. Those that, are different Bob Rocks? Yeah. I always assumed that was that had to be that Bob Rock. See, this shows you what a nerd I am, that I'm <laughs> telling Adam who was in the scene. Well, uh, but Vinnie Vince is from New York, and I was in the L.A. scene with Motley and Quiet Riot and Rat are my local bands, dude. But, well, but I think... You understand? Not... Not Twisted Sister, Bon Jovi, and Vinnie Vincent Invasion, but which I think, was East Coast and Anthrax were in their scene. Well, Vinnie was more, although I think he was from, I want to say uh, Connecticut, but I might be wrong on that. You know, Kiss fans jump on me anytime I'm wrong with a fact. <laughs> but uh, most of their recordings and stuff were done out here. Well, yeah, but they weren't part of the scene because they're no. Kiss. And then, and then he does a thing where he doesn't even have to play clubs to get that deal. It's a, that's a whole different game. In fact, Vinnie Vincent, it's like its own. There are parallels here in LA. I don't want to, I don't want to out people. Well, yeah, you, I don't want you to name names. <laughs> uh, if you want to, you can. Uh, I mean, Vinnie, I'm trying to still play rock and roll, man. Absolutely. I can't be burning bridges. I might have to open for one of these guys. I'm doing paradise shows again. And we're going to get into that. Right. Uh, but you know, I just, I, I'm just so obsessed with Vinnie Vincent because here's a guy kicked out of Kiss three times, but they kept bringing him back because mm. he is a good songwriter for that era or for mm. that genre. Uh, and well, if, Lick It Up made a lot of money and they taken off their makeup. It should have tanked. So he was involved. So there's got to be something about that important. And he wrote eight, co-wrote eight out of the 10 songs. Yeah. So well, basically a Vinnie Vincent solo album, the way I look at it. I don't know. Did, was he on that metal show? Oh, they can't find him. Rolling Stone can't, oh. couldn't find him. 
Because somebody was talking about that. And I, I don't think anybody from Kiss. Oh, well, Peter and Ace have gone. But I mean, I don't think Gene and Paula were gone. They don't like Eddie Trunk. I don't Trump. think Tommy Thayer's gone on. Well, Tommy's... Right? Uh, and the drummer, what's his name? He used to be the in, great Eric Mensinger, uh, Eric Singer, who's in Badlands, right? With the Ray Gillen, yeah, and, which uh, I loved. Badlands oh my god, I mean, so much. I just saw, well, not just, but about six months ago, saw Jake E. Lee's uh, return to the Strip, and uh, it was. Uh, uh, oh yeah, that was the night I was playing at the Viper Room, oh. and um, we got reviewed in this Metal Sludge on the same thing, and they gave us a really good review. And Red, Red Dragon Cartel, ooh, I mean, the singer was impressive. rough. Well, he, I heard he's gone already. He's gone now. Uh, it's too bad because, uh, you know, he was drunk, uh, clearly very nervous, Aww. which I get. Who, Jake? No, uh, the singer. Oh, the singer. Dar- I want to say Whatever. Darren. It's either Darren Smith or Darren James. I don't know. Uh, and he was, uh, like, when they did Rock and Roll Rebel, uh, the Ozzy song. Yeah, yeah. He was singing Rock and Roll Devil. On purpose. I don't think so, to be honest with <laughs> Whatever, you. Whatever, dude. All cr- I know is they created problems for my gig at the Viper Room across the street. That's what I could tell you. Because our our whole event was supposed to be at the Whiskey, and then Jake bumped our whole 80s Sunset Strip thing, reunion benefit that we were doing with other bands off the the, ben- the box set that just came out, Rock and Roll Rebels and Sunset Strip. Which everyone should get. Where? where oh, is- yeah. that's By the way, that's out now, Rock and Roll Rebels and the Sunset Strip. Volume one, because there's going to be volume two. It's 36 bands, two songs each. have never heard before heard songs. There's a lot of bands that, like mine, either were signed later in the 90s, you never heard of us, or almost got signed, or bands that used to sell out, bands that would play the underground scene here in L.A., because there was this huge underground scene that clubs like Cat House and Red Light District and The Scream were a part of, and The Strip. And they were all getting... We were all cross-mingling during that final late 80s, early 90s era. But my band's called Paradise, and we're one of the 36 bands with the two songs. It's a benefit album supposed to help people who went through a, you know, a horrible tragedy. And um, I'm not getting any money, which is, you know, or any of the bands. That's what I'm saying. But I wrote, co-wrote the liner notes also with another singer, Johnny X of the band, The Wild, which is he's they were a big band. But he was also especially known because Dizzy Reed was stolen from his band by Axel and put in Guns N' Roses. So think he's dizzy still with guns to this day who knows with um, guns. from what i hear he's he's still there anyway so the wild johnny and me both uh, wrote the liner notes and so there's a lot of information in liner notes nobody's ever heard about it's not just glam metal by that era anymore it's not hair metal and it's not grunge yet it's a whole other thing that went on from like 88 to 91 and so we talk about the hollywood underground era of the sunset strip now, where can they get this? iTunes? Oh, or? well, it is on iTunes, but then you won't get the liner notes, apparently. And it's four discs um, with 20 songs per disc, right? So roughly like that. 80 so, songs total? Wait, no, I'm wrong. 36 bands, two songs each. 72. That's 72 songs. Good. You're good with math. Good. Oh, I'm Jewish. I am not. <laughs> listen, when we're talking numbers, I can tell you what every band's... Okay. So anyway, if you go to eonianrecords.com, you can order the box set and then you get a real CD case sent to you with liner notes and photos and bios on every single band. It's a really nice package for $39.95. Can you spell that for my fan base? Oh, 
E-O-N-I-A-N records.com. Yeah, that is hard to know. E-O-N-I-A-N. Well, for my fan base. And I they're mean, on Facebook. You know, they're, they're, oh, they keep putting our articles. Like, we, I just got an article in what used to be a big magazine here in the scene called Screamer Magazine. Yep. They were really, after Bam Magazine, they were kind of like very important, helping promote local bands as well as national. And they have an online, screamer, go to screamermagazine.com, and there's a huge article on the box set, and I'm interviewed in there, and a bunch of other great singers and Johnny too from, and it's a, there's good stuff, kind of stuff you want us to get into on this podcast. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, I don't have people, I think a lot of people I have on think I'm uh, like a Harvey Levin uh, type. I want to get dirt and name names. Well, and who, maybe. <laughs> I mean, you know, only if you're comfortable. I don't, you know, like uh, when I had Rowdy Roddy Piper on, yeah. you know, he's a, a wrestling legend, but. Uh, and the star of They Live. Oh. I mean, it all starts and ends with that movie. <laughs> uh, what is it? I'm chewing bubble gum uh, and kicking ass. He gave me a bubble gum soda right there. <laughs> That's cool, man. <laughs> um, which I will never drink. It will just stay in that bottle. But uh, you he know, he wrestled like, in a kilt. That takes balls. Balls, and he's got big <laughs> ones. But you know, it was hard for me to have him on and say, "Hey, tell us who fucked you over in the WWE." Oh, yeah. I it's going to go back there at some point and work. And, you know, mm -hmm. I know that you're going to have to either have these bands open for you or you open for them. Uh, <laughs> I wish they were opening for me. But you never know. I mean, uh, <laughs> uh, because there's a concert coming up, uh, I think, August 15th, Irvine Met. Are you well, talking about the Cat House Live event? Well, I call it Irvine Meadows just because. Well, they, whatever. It's Cat House Live. And I saw Ricky posting about it on Facebook and but, stuff. Were you cons uh, considering doing that? or? Um, well, I haven't put out the Paradise Do or Die album yet. So, see, I wish I'd put it out before this podcast so people could just go to iTunes and check it out because the album was produced by Jay Baumgartner, who's like really humongous powerful producer these days done grammy award-winning production for evanescence uh papa roach when they sold eight million units like modern hard rock metal bands and the album's really good for 1991 recording it was smoking um but and nobody's heard it because it was only out in europe right. legged in japan um so i want to put it out there i've re spent a grand remastering it but I just, there's, you know, I'm still hustling and grinding like I'm a 20 year old trying to make money because I have an acting career. I'm recurring on the show Longmire. I do voiceovers where you and I met and I'm trying to do rock and roll at pushing, you know, in my mid. Uh, yeah, yeah, we don't. Have to <laughs> hey, listen, I'm 46, but <laughs> I'm older than you. It's up, but you don't look it. Ah, thank you. And, uh, you know, I did the splits at the gig at the Viper Room last november because people were like you're gonna have to go to the hospital i'm like no dude i keep in shape well you're one of the few hey well my fantasy was that i would get to rock again and now i'm doing an original band writing new metal stuff i don't think i can say their name i'm doing a cover band of thin lizzy covers i agreed to do covers never done covers in my life do you Even do phil i'm assuming you're phil i do a hill crazy phil impression vocally but i don't play bass so it's not a tribute band or right. anything I don't, I don't fuzz my hair out into a big afro and wear just a thin mustache and do Thank my God. best Phil Linnet impression. Is it Linet? I, I say Linet, but... Uh, yeah, the, I think the Irish say Linet. But I, anyway, the band's called Lost Lizzie, and we're in heavy rehearsals. We have 18 songs down. We're about to learn all of Live and Dangerous. Oh, wow. And just do that to live. And, and I'm doing Paradise again with guys who are all on the strip. Every got everybody in the band played the Sunset Strip back All, in the day. Now was Paradise one of those bands that you're rotating members? Or is it? A, is there a classic? There will lineup? never be a reunion of the, any original guys because first of all, I started with the guitar player, and really we started out of high school 
and we started writing songs and, and, and he kept saying no to rhythm sections for two years. Finally, I brought in some guys and we called it paradise and started, you know, rehearsing. And then we started playing out and started, brought ourselves up to headliners, selling out the Roxy, the whiskey, Gazaris. Then we got big enough to sell out the country club, which is a thousand a seater. Big in the deal. Yeah, dude. Okay, I'll, I'll dish a little dirt because I don't know how much I feel about this famous band. But I'll, here's something people don't know or remember. Guns N' Roses was big. Yeah, I saw them at the Troubadour in 85, okay? And it was packed. It was really packed. And he was screaming his head off. And I couldn't understand the songs. And I walked out, which I never did. And I've seen everybody at the Troubadour from, you know, Quiet Riot, which was being called Dubrow, to Great White, you know, Molly Crew, Wasp, Black and Blue, Armored Saint, Striper. I mean, I've seen everybody there before they got signed when they were local when I was in high school. But I walked out on Guns N' Roses. Now, meanwhile, Poison could do two nights at the country club. That was unheard of. Friday and Saturday night. Motley could have done that when they were local and big. That means you were really big. You had a huge fan base. Guns was more of a, you know, it was like a Hollywood local phenomenon. That's why after they got signed, they did shows with bands like Jane's Addiction that would never play with a band like Poison. Right. But Poison drew like four to five times as many people. So that's why when they took a tiny little crappy deal with Enigma in 86 and then Guns get signed by you know, uh, Geffen, boy, it seemed weird. Everything, it was just weird. So all I know is everybody thinks guns was so great and whatever, but the truth is poison was 10 times bigger than they were in the scene. They were powerful. There were kids in my high school rocking poison shirts before they got signed. Nobody was rocking guns and roses shirts. And I'd like to say that, uh, Mr. Rose, uh, Mr. Bailey, <laughs> see, I'm like, I like, name pro wrestlers real names i'll do it with him too uh took a few of his stage moves from one of my favorite yeah, richard from shark island richard black richard churney to Dude, those of you paradise who- open for shark island right when they got signed i think it was 88 so they like were that. shark island and not the sharks the, no after they were the sharks in like the early 80s when i saw see that same the summer before i saw guns 85 i just graduated high school and i went to gazari's for the first time because it's 18 and over club See, the Troubadour Country Club were all ages. The Whiskey had been closed, but it was an all ages club. That's another thing nobody talks about. The Whiskey was closed from 82 to 86. Really? And it, Yeah. And it massively messed with the scene. Uh, massively. Because the Troubadour became the only place because Gazzari's was 18 and over. And the Roxy wasn't even booking. Like, they weren't so cool with bringing in the hard rock or the hair metal bands. They were always leaning more to, like, a K-rock kind of right. new wave kind of Gary punk, Newman. Whatever, dude. Whatever. X and all that fear okay. and those bands. Anyway, so I lost my whole point. But So we're talking about Shark Island. So they were Shark They were the Sharks. Island, and then- I believe they were still Shark. They had turned to Shark Island in the summer of 85 when I saw them at Gazzaro. Okay. That would be my guess. But they were awesome, and I'll never forget the stuff Richard was doing. Even his mic stand, dude. He had that chrome mic stand that you see in Axel in the Guns videos in like 9091 on Use Your Illusion. I saw him rocking that in 85, man. He had this thing, and it was balanced perfectly, and he would move like a snake, and he wore like ballet slippers. He was dope. And Amazing. I, there's a, often it's almost like a... A uh, not a cult story, but a, a story where someone walked into Axl Rose's apartment 
mid 80s and they say he was just watching shark island tapes <laughs> so i don't know if that's true or not I mean, i've heard he had vhs of their right. footage from gazari's and there was a camera gazari's so it's and, possible and if you watch the uh shark island video i think it's might have been the only one they uh, got on mtv uh bad for each other you see yeah richard do uh kind of a sh- modified snake dance and you're like jesus christ he dances like Axl yeah Rose. he was doing no it's the other way around. right but but whatever i'm not that's not to dis look the appetite album is an incredible album and they affected the scene in a massive way here's another thing here's another uh the fantasy is nirvana killed us here's the truth when my band was huge and selling out the country club and everything in 89, that's when we finally rose to that status of my heroes from Motley to Warren to Poison. We were now on that level and we're shopping with all the majors. We had huge management. We had a publicist. We had a promoter that was in, everybody had points for an album that we hadn't even signed for yet. And we're becoming this big monster, right? Which tells you, you're like, oh, this means we're really going to make it. We're standing out from the other hundreds of hair bands around. Hundreds. And we- there were hundreds in the scene, yeah. And that's just the strip. There were hundreds in the rest of the underground LA scene as well, from Coconut Teaser to, you know, whatever, playing Bordello in the back room and all this other stuff that was happening. So the, the, anyway, the point being, in the middle of all that, when we shopped to the majors that summer, when we were primed and everything should have happened and we should have said yes, um, we got back from pretty much four of the biggest majors in the world this is what they said. We'll either sign you for about a quarter of a mil, about 250 grand up front for, for do the album, whatever. And, um, that no guarantee for a video, no guarantee for a single, no tour support, no nothing. Um, but we're only signing you for a one album deal. Cause we think your kind of glammy thing is over and dead. And you've got to be more like guns and roses and skid row were the catchphrases for 89. And if you, if you go back in time, you'll know that they had just dropped like patience, which is like a black and white video. Like they were changing up their style, even from appetite and the lies EP was now putting out patience and skid row had just come out and they're all youth gone wild wearing black leather in an alley. So us being paradise and palm trees and smiling and happy and three part harmonies and doing choreography and all that kind of Van Halen, you know, what have you rat Bon Jovi, Def Leppard shit which was all over MTV, by the way. Def Leppard was on like their eighth single off Hysteria. Fucking, you know, Bon Jovi had four or five singles. White Snake. They were telling us that was dead, the labels. It's already dead. And by 1990, all those bands are done. So if you want a real deal, the kind that everybody dreams of, here's what you need to do. You need to be more like Guns N' Roses and Skid Row. You need to change all your clothes, change your name, get the hairspray out of your hair. Never have any makeup again, of course. So throw the choreography away. You don't want as many girls in the audience coming to your gig. Um, you want to change everything that made you sell at the country club last month? You want to throw that all out the window. And we were like, really? And it was every major that was interested. And our manager had gotten us to every head of A&R at every major. So this was real. So he's advising us, don't take a quarter million in a one album deal. You want at least three albums guaranteed. And with your option to pick up, and you want a half million, you want a $500,000 advance. Plus, I'm offering you a $180,000 publishing deal with Warner Electric Atlantic. And, and then, so I'm like, wait a minute, we hide out, we leave the scene right when we're selling out like our heroes had done, selling more merch and demos and posters and pictures as if we were signed. I'm signing autographs next to my heroes when they would come back in the scene from Janie Lane to Brett Michaels as if I'd made it. 
I'm like, really? We're supposed to disappear, throw away our leather, put on some jeans, flatten out my hair, start writing about how miserable and dark and angry and aggressive. I, and they were like, that's how the 90s are going to go. So that's the truth. By the time Nirvana's Nevermind drops in 91, if you hadn't changed and thrown any glam out of your style, you're a moron. Sorry for all those bands from the scene that did it, but... And there were a lot of them that came out in 1990 wearing like white base makeup with their hair all hairsprayed 400 feet off their head. And Are you talking about the Peppermint Creeps? I wouldn't know. Uh, I think they sound like a punk band to me. I wouldn't know. But anyway, the point is that our scene had already been changing. Bands from the underground, like a band like Funhouse or the Zeros, oh. they were headlining and then Paradise would headline the next night or the Wild would headline or, you know what I'm saying? Like we had... It was all getting changed even before the labels gave us an ultimatum and we knew it. But the reason we had stuck to glam through 88 into the beginning of 89 is because we had a nemesis band on the scene. And, and they were already trying to be like Guns N' Roses in their style, just like everybody else was doing in LA in 88. Can I say what their name was? You can. And you might want to correct me because I'm confused. Uh, they, you were Paradise, like uh, Paradise City. I mean, like yeah, uh, well, okay. And this <laughs> this band was called Pair of Dice. Well, with an A. Pair of Dice. Here's the thing. Okay. Set the record straight. Oh God, I don't even know how I could say this succinctly, and I just talked for so. Damn Can long. I interrupt you for one Please, second? Go ahead. Go ahead. This is a uh, legendary episode of Inappropriate Earl already, because not only you you talk a lot, which I love. Note. Please. Lead singer disease. The worst thing in the world is to have someone on who doesn't talk a lot. No one wants to hear what I have to say. They've heard me for 60 episodes. <laughs> this is the first inappropriate Earl ever to be periscoped. So oh, cool. uh, I'm not sure how it exactly uh -oh. works, but uh, we are live on Periscope as well. And get back to the scandal. So here, well, here was the thing. Um, when we were starting our band in, we were started writing in 86, okay? Glam was the thing. Uh, that year, Faster Pussycat, Poison, and Guns N' Roses, all, and Jet Boy, I think, all got signed in 86. That was the scene. That was the glam era. The first era was the metal era with Motley and Quiet Riot and Great White and Rat and Wasp. And the second era was this glam era I'm talking about. We, my band, Paradise, was going to get big in the third era. And here's why I call it the Hollywood Underground. Because, yeah, we started out glam. Everybody was glam. That was the thing at, in L.A. Forget about MTV and that Motley had done Theater of Pain already and everybody was like, oh, glam. And Poison was breaking. The, the fact is we didn't want to be that. We called ourselves Paradise actually because it made us sound different than all the other local bands who were either trying to be like full on metal or they were trying to be like. Motley Crue clones, there were a lot of Halen clones, and there were all these kind of poisony clones in the local scene, glam and all that. And then there was the trashy, sleazy, like out of the cat house into the strip, the underground meeting the scene. Faster Pussycat. Pussycat. So there's another band, LA Guns, and, and they were all trying to do that thing. We didn't want to be like any of them. And big mainstream bands who had been big enough to do like Country Club and get signed like a Hurricane. I don't know if you know who they are. Uh, uh, Rough Cut. Sarzo Brothers. They got big deals at the time. They didn't put a, out a $20,000 deal on Enigma like Poison had done. And Poison was bigger than them. So it was all weird how the business was working, how you, know, how you translate into the national. So when we call ourselves Paradise, my big complaint to the guitar player was, it sounds too much like Journey, Boston. Like, we want to be a little heavier than that, dude. We want to be like Rat, at least, or Van Halen. We want to be like, 
you know, I love Journey in Boston and Sticks and whatever, but you know what I mean. It's not the uh, your fans. Would, would well, not. We, you don't have fans yet. You're you're rehearsing. You're 18 years old, having your first band, rehearsing in a you know 20 dollar an hour little rat hole, dude. That's what you're doing. You don't know what the hell you're doing. You just are trying to carve it. So somehow though, we my guitar player kept presenting me. I wrote the songs with him. He you know he'd write the riff. I'd write the lyrics, melodies. That was normal, right? Everybody knows that. Well. He would have two styles of songs. They'd either be more kind of like bluesy, heavy Tesla, White Snake arena stuff, which I thought was awesome, more epic maybe. And then he'd write these super poppy, candy ass commercial, girls are going to love it, three minute hooky. I was like, dude, oh, we got to write those too. So when we started playing in 87, Two things happen. First of all, we said, okay, something about Paradise sounds like it's not from the LA scene. You're not dirty, gypsy, trash, gutter, and you're not, you know, you know what I'm saying? Racer X was a big band. It wasn't like anybody else. Paul Gilbert and Scott Travis oh, on drums. God, oh yeah, they were so awesome. I used to love them. They also could sell at the country club two nights in a row. Were there they too good? Could do that. Anyway, wait, we'll talk about Razor X. I love Razor oh, X. Please. I have a Razor X story where they wanted me to sing for them. And I, like a schmuck, said no, because I was only 21 and I was nervous. Anyway, so the point being, we talk about the name. We're like, ah, Paradise does kind of suit our range of material. It sounds like at the forum, Paradise. You know, and we were like, that could be on KLOS. That could be real. A Nederlander production. Absolutely. That was the dream, right? So... Anyway, he makes a joke at band practice. Watch when we go out to play, there'll be some local band. Now, local in our world meant you're like a hundred other dudes, you're hair metal. You just, just another dude who grew your hair, got tight pants. You think you can play. And the singer's going, Wah! and the guitar player's going, blah, blah, blah. and we were like, no, we want to write really good songs. We want to last. We want to be on the radio. We want to be like Van Halen and transcend the genre. As much as we love the genre, Dawkins, Rat. White Snake, you know, we didn't want to be stuck. We want Paradise sounded like it. It makes you commercial crossover. You're not right. stuck. So he makes a joke. Watch, dude. There'll be this is how Matt talked. Did watch. There'll be some local band, fully local, dude, and their, their name will be Pear O Dice with a big O and apostrophe, and they'll have big dice on stage, big dice on their logos, and we're laughing our butts off. Cut to. Five months later, we've written our full, full set. We're going to play our first show at the Troubadour. And I go to the Sunset Strip to promote. And some dude hands me a flyer. And I hand him a flyer. And his says, pair a dice with big dice on it and a big A. And it was war. And um, they were much more powerful than we were because they were the remnants of a band called Circus that had been a big deal and had money and had sold out already. So they were way ahead of us. So that finishes back up to the thing I was saying. In 88, when we went glam, the thing was, even though we knew it was already running out of style, pair of dice wore black leather and like posed like they were sexy and dangerous in their photos, you know, kind of like warrant meets guns and roses. Right. We're bad boys. And we were paradise. We had to make the difference. So I put palm trees on the damn flyers. We'd say if they're going to be scarling and wearing black, we're going to wear white and pink and smile and be happy and be... Part of it was defining ourselves from our, our nemesis so that we didn't have confusion with the labels and everything, which we did end up having massive problems and confusion. Were you guys ever on the same bill? 
we never agreed to do that, but many promoters wanted to. In fact, Retrospect Records hit me up a few years ago and wanted to sign Paradise to put out all our unreleased stuff because he had signed Pair of Dice. They'd done Rocklahoma and we're doing a comeback. So, uh, no, I never wanted to help them in any way. Were you guys ever asked to do Rocklahoma? Well, we weren't playing. We weren't doing what they were doing. You know, what I mean? like, in 2008, when I got a bunch of offers, I said, no, I had a deal for my own band, Love Child, and nobody thought I was a dude in my, I wasn't even in my 40s yet. I was passing for younger and trying to still have a career. You still aren't. <laughs> As a current valid person, not this dude from the strip in the 80s, but now I'm outed. There's nothing I can do about it. Well, you are after today. I mean... Today, the Rock and Roll Rebels thing, man, I've been doing interviews with magazines from around the world. So, you know, it's out there. Uh, <laughs> there's nothing I can do about it. Or as Fred, we were talking about Fred Curry when I met Fred a few years ago when I was doing my band Love Child. My hair was short. I was selling a whole different thing, clean shaven, whatever. And my music was more kind of new metal styly, but some of the flash of a guy that can't help but want to have eighties shit going on, you know? And Fred's like, dude, you can't help it. You're eighties. Everybody knows. And I'm like, come on, we only sold out in LA. Nobody knows it. <laughs> He's like, you can't, you can't escape it. Well, you so got, I've surrendered. You got to embrace it. I am embracing it. Don't be like the singer. That's why I'm growing my hair back. Dude, Looks you know how good, long man. it's going to take me to grow my hair. I have curly hair. I don't have that straight hair that grows in like seven months. We'll send you to Gene Simmons extension Tom, house. I would never get extensions. I'm not cool with extensions. I could tell a great extension story about a guy you would know about, but I don't think he'd be very happy with me. Well, listen, like I said, I don't want you to <laughs> burn bridges. Uh, I've already probably burned some bridges, but that's all right. But that's okay. I'm not friends with the guys in Guns N' Roses anyway. So. Well, no, I mean, I don't think uh, the, <laughs> the Axel, Richard Black, I mean, that's oh, been sure, told Oh, sure, they times. know I'm a fan. Dude, oh. Well, that's a great story. That was like the moment I thought it could really happen was when we opened for Shark Island at the Roxy and we were still pre-selling, you know, but we actually had fans. So we weren't like buying our tickets and giving them away like, like a lot of people were doing. We actually had enough people to buy my tickets. So we, we sold all our tickets plus extras and we, we knew we were going to pack it. Shark Island was already a headline sellout before they even, um, you know, got signed. So we knew it was going to be awesome. And we felt their music and our music were compatible in that we were always going to be commercial hard rock, whether we were wearing glam clothes or black leather Hollywood underground clothes. We were always going to be, you know, more up the middle, if you will. It's like, and we love Shark Island. But that was the show. I wore these stupid spandex, dude. I'll never forget. They were, I, you know, I love Motley Crue and they were kind of a knockoff of a pair that Vince Neil had. And I've just, you know, I throw them on. I'm wearing like a <laughs> ridiculous stuff. They were like pink and black leopard print spandex, you know, outrageous. But we go on stage at the Roxy where there's no room between the audience and the people. You know, you've been to the Roxy, right? Of course. Okay. And I don't know. We were like two songs in and I'm jumping around. I never stopped moving back then. I was like 19, 20 years old. And we're doing choreography and we're sweating and jumping. And these three girls reach for my my cock, dude. That had never happened at a gig before. We'd been playing for a year and a half. Keep going. And- and I don't think about it, but the pants have no belt or anything. They're made out of the tiny little spandex. Like it's a girl's, it's stripper. It's a girl's stripper clothes. I bought it like Playmates on Hollywood Boulevard for like 20 bucks. So they get a hold of it and they almost pull my cock right out in front of this huge, it was packed to the rafters, dude. There are people standing at the back of the Roxy. 
maybe they're there for Shark Island, you know, not us, but we were killing it. And then all of a sudden I'm like, oh shit. And I had to grab it and I had nothing to tie on. And like for the rest of the gig, I'm running around with my hand holding my pants up, <laughs> which is ridiculous. So I started wearing suspenders. And then that became like my little gimmick, you know, in the scene, I, nobody else seemed to have suspenders on. You, you kept trying to find ways to be unique or stand out or, you know, like your Michael Jackson glove. You know oh. what I mean? You're trying to do something that you'd be, you know what I mean? You didn't just want to be another Brett Michaels lookalike or whoever. Stevie. Uh, I'm not going to, hey, we opened for Tough. I'm a fan of Tough. Tough is proof that there was a Hollywood underground era because there was nobody glamour than Tough, dude. Let me Tuck say was this. So glam, they made poison and, and a Taz and and whoever looked like they were wearing, you know, no makeup. Well, Stevie Rochelle, uh, full disclosure, uh, I advertise on Metal Sludge, which is his great site. I love Stevie Rochelle, uh, even with that towel picture he took. Uh, <laughs> well, here was the thing: we opened up for them in Phoenix in the fall of '88, right? And I hadn't seen them in a couple months, but I'd seen them. They give out silly string at the shows for the fans to. It was like it was fun, and it was super glam. And they even, I think they even advertised as the biggest hair in Hollywood before brunette got there and then we opened for them and they come out and they're wearing like black leather dude and they're they had like an ep they had a tour bus too they weren't even signed <laughs> we were so jealous and they had roadies with merch and everything they looked like they were signed everything was so awesome and then um uh they had this single good guys wear black and i was like that's tough like what's right. happening like and that's when we started looking at ourselves already and saying wait a minute should we be getting rid of the glam thing too should we be throwing our aquanet out too are we going to be too late you know when i saw a band like trickster on mtv i was like i don't want to be that because mm. they were kind of like, dressed Ugh. in grunge style outfits but their music even <laughs> No, yes, no. you're right. They were already throwing away what had they had been. If you see pictures of them playing their scene, they weren't quite that down to earth until 89 is the transition year. People don't understand that. Well, you that look is at, not 91 when Nevermind came out, 89. But you look at like Cinderella, like they went from uh, Long Cold Winter to Heartbreak Station, where they were. But even Long Cold Winter, yeah, he was wearing those Steven Tyler type outfits. But the music, sonically, that was them taking away any of that kind of happy, smiley, party 80s thing. That was what was From really like going to die. the Night Songs era to Heartbreak Station. It's a dramatic. And even Kiss was, yes. uh, you know, crazy. Not, well, from Asylum to, say, Revenge, a drastic appearance Jack, change. I didn't like that crazy, crazy. See, that's my favorite crazy. Kiss album ever. Come on. I'm a huge Desmond Child guy, so he wrote most you of You know those. what Desmond Child did to my friends Bite the Bullet, who were on the uh, Rock and Roll Rebels and Sunset Strip album, but you would know his South Gang? Oh, yes. Oh, that's one of the worst stories ever. I'll tell you this story, because Desmond's never going to work with me. So you don't know that. <laughs> anyway, the point is this. Um, I, we, I remember when they first came to town, we were already headlining. Okay, selling out because Ari's is where Bite the Bullet would play a lot. And they had good songs. Jesse's voice was smoking. And Jesse Hart? Yeah, the singer. And they weren't that glam. They were kind of, you know, they were pretty, but like they were clearly trying to be like us, more of a Def Leppard Bon Jovi thing. Okay. And 
they were awesome. They started getting big and packing them in uh, very quickly. I'd say within three to four months, they were headlining. But I remember when they first came and they were all shucks and sweet and nice and their songs were good. And I used to actually go just to support them. They were one of the few bands I really liked in the scene. I thought was going to make it. I'll never forget. He gets the deal. And he becomes like a totally different person to me. It's like he doesn't know me. And this is like probably a year later. And we're at this bar, Ten Masa, which is still on the Sunset Street, but across from the Rainbow. And that's where my home was because everybody else was at the Rainbow. We were at the sushi bar. And um, he comes in and he's just the cock of the walk. Yeah, they got this big deal. Da, 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 da. Okay. Literally three months later, he comes in and he wants to talk to me. And he's desperate. He's like depressed and he wants to get hammered. He didn't know me when I got signed now. He goes, Desmond Child came in. He said, all our songs suck. We, yeah, they're crap. He threw out everything. I'm like, everything? You had good songs. Russian Roulette, that was a good track. He's like, he threw out everything. He's rewriting everything. We're going to have these backup singers. We're not going to be called Bite the Bullet anymore. We're going to be called South Gang. Like he, he, he was telling me a little bit about what could happen to us if we sign the wrong contract for a major deal and they go, we've got a ringer to do your first single for you. You know, I'm glad he broke Bon Jovi, okay? I was a big Bon Jovi fan. First two albums really didn't sell that great. They never, they didn't sell to that Desmond Child single came out on Slippery When Wet. That Living would, on a Prayer. and then, No, that would have never come out, I bet, if they hadn't done the first single. Love Shot is Shot through the right. heart. That's the Desmond Child written with Bon Jovi. Probably Desmond wrote it mostly himself. I don't know. You know what I mean? So he'd done that. He'd broken that act. That brought him into a level beyond when he worked with Kiss, I would say. And Desmond Child became like, you know. He was the go-to guy. You just have to listen to what he says. I understand that. There were a lot of producers like that who were writing, co-writing with bands. You know, Bo Hill. Your Mutt Langs of this world, they were more than valuable. And we were having our own experience with a producer that's now famous, but he was already doing that to us when he wasn't even that well known. So we were finding out about how it really works. But there's a point where you have to cross the line. That's why we didn't change our name for Paradise. We took out the hairspray, but we didn't just wear jeans and hide out in a room and write songs about depression. Instead, we kept playing. We burned our bridge with that manager. That's why we were never able to sign with a major. He called back every one of those contacts and said, they're not only going to not take a quarter of a mil for one album, they're not going to wait and write great songs for six months and come back to you and showcase again, which is what all the labels said if we wanted the, you know, a real deal, what you really want. Anyway, whatever. That's, that's my paradise story. And, and, and that's how it went. But South Gang's a good example. And I could name you dozens of bands like that you never heard of that you would like. If you like Shark Islands and those bands from our scene, you would like these bands. And they basically got deals where they got a big shaft from a label. And I know people who were in lockdown. They couldn't even put out stuff with their own band name. They weren't allowed to play together. Weird shit was happening because of how the labels were working. Well, because that's what's always like uh, puzzled me is like you see a band like Shark Island who and I'm just using them as an example where everyone said they were great live, the great front man, the songs were good. Uh, that was the argument that they didn't have the songs. That was the argument about Racer X at the time. They're selling out, packing them in. I'm singing their songs in the audience. I thought they were great. The labels allegedly said, "Not you don't have a single, you know, we don't like your songs. That's then, why they put out their album on, I don't even know, whatever Racer X, they were signed to somebody. But like to me, Racer X's problem was obviously the musicianship is amazing. I mean, Paul Gilbert, Scott Travis. That's a problem. I think back then. <laughs> I think back then it was because their image wasn't great. 
they were they were in the middle of the glam era, so they had to kind of be glam, even though they were really like Judas Priest metal. You know what I mean? That was the problem. It was the era. It was like they could, and it worked. So who cares? They had a giant shark come flying down from the rafters, and then all their gear would be matching like in day glow colors, and so it's all in black, and they've got a sound thing, and it was epic. And when they came on, they were tight. They were so good, Racer X, dude. They had choreography, and they were tight, but they were heavy. I think they could have done really well. It's just that, you know, it's all about ass kissing and points on the back end and lawyers now telling you how to write your lyrics because they're going to get more money and people trying to get your publishing and producers and ghost songwriters writing your stuff and all this other crap. Can your drummer play to a click is more important than whether your songs were good. Like everything was being shifted. That was the weight of the 80s. That was bigger than hair metal. You know what I'm saying? Everybody was doing drum machines and click tracks and flying in. You know what I mean? People were already. Now, I love Warrant. I've known them forever. I've had Joey Allen on. I've known Joey since, you know, like I said, they were really a Fairfax High band in in essence when the original singer was Adam Shore. Oh, boy. Who was great. And they were headliner when Janie got in the band, you know. That was nice to walk into a band that's already selling out and headlining. But he rewrote their material. And the word on the street was that Janie got signed, not Warrant. I don't know if this is true. I haven't talked to Eric and Joey in 25 years or something. But the word on the street was Janie got the deal with CBS and everybody else was signed to him that not even all those guys really played on the album. You know what I mean? There were rumors like that. I don't know if they're true, but those are the kinds of things we'd be hearing while we were shopping deals and why we were saying no all the time. Well, I know uh, Joey admit and it, Joey admitted it. That I think Mike Slammer, Slammer. Oh, Joey! I'm sorry, uh, I screwed up. Uh, it's Jerry Dixon and Eric Turner that I've known since the beginning. Joey, I don't know. He's the guitar player. He's a guitar player. My buddy, who was the original, um, Josh. But I Josh. think uh, I forget the producer. He uh, was always using this guy. Mike's. I might be mispronouncing his name. Slammer or Slammer. Uh, I don't know. Has his go-to guy in the studio. So Joey. Oh, oh yeah. I don't know too many studio musicians particularly. And I think uh, CC Deville actually played the solo on. I want to say Cherry Pie. I this- might. This is like somebody told me that Lukather played on the Trickster debut. I'm like, really? I mean, you know. Lukather from Toto, who's like a Grammy monster god. Wow. Okay. That's the kind of shit we didn't want to do. Do you understand, Earl? That's what we were getting hit up with. Do you want to have somebody else write your songs? How about you have somebody else track your vocals? What? Here's a crazy 80s story. I lived in Venice Beach. I had hair down to my ass i worked out all the time that was the other thing i tried to do to be different than all the skinny white dudes in the scene i'm a brown guy i was buffed out i worked out six pack do david lee roth moves on stage all that crap so i'm I'm running around venice beach one day and somebody comes up to me and this is like 88 earl my band's just starting to headline in the summer of 88 so i'm like ooh, we're gonna make it before i turn 21 and some dude's like, hey, I love your look. Uh, I, here's my card. I want you to play bass for this act. And I was like, I don't play bass. I'm a singer. Thanks, whatever. It doesn't matter that you don't play bass, he says. It was, it was Millie Vanilli. Oh. I didn't even know they'd have a fake bass player faking bass on stage with them in their tracks. Why would you even have that? <laughs> that hadn't come out yet. That single hadn't come out. When they came out and I saw them doing their little dance and that I kind of looked like them, I was like, okay, why would you want your bass player to look like the lead guys? I don't know. 
but that was the weird that was a sign of the times you see but looking back that seems so silly because he had like this very they both had rob and van i think was I don't know their names dude i wasn't a fan they had like these super thick jamaican british accents really? but on the on the songs, album they're like r&b-ish it kind of sounded like you like you know well they're they're doing, I can't even remember those hooks. How do they go? I just Blame remember, it on the rain. See, I don't remember that. I remember the stupid dance move they were doing. <laughs> that was the stupidest. Oh, man. But whatever. But back then it didn't look stupid. I mean, when you had a band like Britney Fox looking like gay pirates. But this is what I'm talking about. This We would have called them local too. Even Britney Fox, from LA. even though they I were Philly. Britney Fox sucked. Oh, it, watch you, out. Watch sorry, out. Take that back. That's just me. What was that single? So, well, Save the Week might have been one of the, well, not, well. Hey, I could piss off all the 80s people with one thing. Look, I'm a lead singer. And I can sing in that ACDC, you know, Britney Fox, Salty Dog, Faster Pussycat sound. But I don't because everybody was doing it. That's something we considered local. So I sang in my actual baritone voice. <laughs> which was somewhere between a Bon Jovi and a Dave Lee Roth or something. And that's what I did. But could I have sung a bunch of songs going, and I, have I probably pissed off half the bands on Rock and Roll Rebels? I don't know. I don't have to tell you. I thought it was a cop-out to sing that way. It's it's easier to me. Well, I'll give the guy a- Shoot the thrill! Play the kill! Oh, yeah! Whoa, whoa! Whatever. Just to me. So I liked Cinderella, but I didn't buy their album. That was another thing. I don't know if you did this in the 80s, Earl. To me, this is a super 80s rocker thing. I had a cassette player connected to my turntable that I bought at Sears for like 150 bucks. Because if I judged a band as like, well, I want to have a few of their songs, but I'm not going to go to the record store and spend, you know, $10. I'd go to my buddy who had night songs, for example, and then I would tape it. So I was long before we had Napster and all this crap. I was doing that. I don't, weren't you doing that? Um, I, you know, I, I had uh, many Walkmans in my life and I would just fast forward. Like it was, it's so weird now to think that well, you that's, get what I'm saying is I would not want to buy it. That would be my attitude about the quality level of the band. If it was new Van Halen. I bought it. I probably bought it on vinyl and then made a cassette tape for my Walkman. You see what I'm saying? Oh, no. I, and I, then there was a time when I judged, okay, I'm not going to buy them on vinyl, but I will buy the cassette. <laughs> and then there were ones where I go, I'm not buying the shit. Hey, dude, let me borrow your, <laughs> like, Dangerous Toys. There's a band that I thought, to me, they were the epitome of local. When I first heard the song Sportin' a Woody on the radio, I laughed my ass off. I thought, that's their single? And then I started to kind of have a guilty pleasure and like the song, and I wanted to have it on my fingers. You know that song? Oh, oh of course. Uh, bang, Spotted bang. Woody. <laughs> Women walking by. Right? I mean, when your titties fly. I was oh, like, wow. Uh, the lyrics weren't, you know. Wow. But I was so a, I taped it from a friend is the point. Because right. I wasn't going to buy it. I wasn't going to support them. <laughs> Listen, it's all good. I downloaded my uh, oh, dude. fair share of music. But, uh, you know, a lot of the bands I like, like, you know, back in the day, you couldn't get a Kane Roberts solo album on stores. It just, so I had to go on Napster. When he was playing with Alice or after? Uh, well, after when Desmond Child, it's another Desmond Child story. <laughs> well, you like Desmond. And I, I just, do. I, I, I just, I just sat on Desmond. I'm so sorry. Do you like South Gang too? Not really. I mean, uh, <laughs> but Kane had two solo albums. One was, uh, you know, not my kind of music. The first one, a okay. little heavy for him. Ooh. And then in about 1991, he did an album called Saints and Sinners, 
which sounds like uh, throwaway Bon Jovi songs. Oh, really? Um, That's cool. But I love that era of yeah. Bon Jovi. So you so. didn't listen to grunge when it happened. Not really. I stuck not with- anybody, not Alice in Chains or even Soundgarden or- I mean, I went after like Piercy's solo band Arcade. You that's know. why you like. That's why you had Fred. On, you know, that's yeah, extra Fred, connect, Cinderella and Arcade. Yeah. Um, I was buying like uh, Wildside. Uh, you know, when Nirvana came out, I Wildside the L.A. With, band, uh, Drew Hanna and that uh, one? Brent Woods. Yeah, the one that had been called Young Guns. Yeah, they had to change your name to Wildside. So I to don't. Me, that was a perfect example. I think they got a terrible deal. I think they signed a bad deal. Well, I don't think just, their video was spent, they spent enough money. I don't think the single was right, and I don't think they got the right push. Well, just the timing, I think, uh, was uh, just not in the cards for them. You know, five well, years earlier. I don't know. I've seen that video on YouTube not that long ago, doing a little homework on our era. Oh no, I just but weren't. I, I mean, just as a fan, uh, you know, there was just a few bands that were like. 91 through 93. It was just wow, if this came out five years earlier. Ah, well, that for me, that's TNT. Tony I like the stuff they were putting out in that 91 to 93. I still like Badlands. I like that second album was real oh. when they got real 70s on it. The Blue Murder album that followed up the debut, I thought was really, really good too. But there was no way those acts were going to sell at that time because of, you know, what was happening. I mean, you know, uh, that's what's really screwed up, dude. We cut our album in 91, right? Right as it, Nevermind comes out while I'm in the studio. Okay, so, and our songs had already changed. We were definitely not so glammy, Def Leppardy, Poisony, whatever, Bon Jovi. By then, we were more hard rock, you know, big, powerful hard rock, but we sure as hell weren't grunge. And, um, you know, we're tracking the album, and I'm like, we got to get this out. We got to get this out. And then the label goes, oh, we're going to put it out in summer 92. I'm like, no, dude, you can't do that. We're done. Anyway, as you know, I think... Not only did Nirvana blow up in 91, but in 92, then Pearl Jam dropped. And it was, we were like, oh, shit. So we got a call from the head of our little German label. And he goes, Earl, check this out. For a band that's still pretty much a commercial hard rock band in 92, okay? Just like you were talking about, those bands put out albums that only, if only it was four or five years before. And we were sitting on an album like that. And he goes, I've got you on the first leg of the Bon Jovi tour. What album was that, 92? The one after New Bad Jersey. Bad Madison? No, 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 no. That's New Jersey or, or whatever. This, the one after Slippery. I think it was maybe the one after that one. And it, maybe it didn't sell in the States, but it was selling in Europe. They were doing arenas. You understand? My dream was happening, but by then we all hated each other. And I wanted to kill my guitar player, so I quit. And then he said, the second leg of the Extreme Tour. And they were big that was bet the right three then. Side, well, they were getting a little play on MTV on that third album, but they were doing well in Europe, apparently. And that would have really sold Paradise, I think. We could have probably just done anywhere but America for a few years in the 90s and not been grunge and done fine. But I quit and started a new band. So Was it just frustration with the scene? Like, No, I hated my guitar player and my band members. But I why? I hated them. So I started a whole new band. I started to do a new metal thing in 92 because I had seen some of that happening already. I hadn't seen Rage. Rage were local. But I saw um, Korn play at this little tiny club at Dragonfly in front of 10 people and thought, oh, my God, who, who are these guys? I saw Deftones play at the Roxbury, bro. <laughs> when the strip really died and people started going to Roxbury. And I had helped start like the house band there on Friday nights. And I would go every once in a while. I saw Deftones at like four o'clock on a Saturday afternoon at the Roxbury. 
with nobody in there. And I was like, this is the next shit. So I started another band called Love Child and tried to do, and was doing new metal shit from 92 to 94. Right as my album got done, my label went bankrupt. So I quit music for a while. Well, listen. That's all. I used to go dancing at Roxbury and I would wear gray sweatpants <laughs> so I could rub up against a girl and uh, come on the dance floor. So Are you serious? Absolutely. No doubt. Because my friends were very... Uh, really? I have friends who went to the body shop and that's why they get a lap dance. Well, my friends, I before I started comedy, long story short, because it's about you. But no, 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 go ahead. I've been talking to shit. No, no, this, you're the perfect podcast guest, and that water is for you, by the way. Um, Thank you. Uh, I would go dancing there. Uh, you know, it was a happening nightclub, uh, and I would go in sweatpants so I could grind on a girl and come. They would the let you in with sweatpants at the Roxbury, which was cherry picking the guests. Normally, uh, they would not let most people in, but I was going in with these very high level agents and managers, uh -huh. and it was just like I've never had a drink or drug in my life. So really, uh, yeah. So my friends who uh, did. They would always want me around. I was a pretty big guy back then. Uh -huh. So I got to live the life of uh, basically a rock star. Wow. Or whatever you want to call it. But why would you wear sweatpants? No, I know. Because I wanted to come. <laughs> I wasn't as good with the ladies as I am now. My friends who used to do that at the body shop were 20 years after the strip. Nobody in the strip had to do shit like that. I, but I'll admit to something similar to that. When I was like 14, or, when I was 15 Please years old, do. and I went to see Wasp for the first time at the Troub, and there was a line up Doheny Drive, I'll admit, me and my buddy were wearing Spanx, and we're telling ourselves, it's cool because Iron Maiden does it. It's right. cool because Maiden and Priest do it, then we're not, you know, part of this West Hollywood reality of the Troubadour. We're part of the Sunset Strip reality, if you know what I mean. So we go, and even a, a band like Wasp, which drew a lot of dudes, also drew a lot of hot chicks wearing spandex. And the thing about spandex is you don't need sweatpants, dude. Yeah. You could rub up. It would be oh. packed. You All you'd have to do is position yourself behind a hot girl, and there's no way she's not bumping into you through, for the entire performance. But if she turned around and saw she didn't think you were cute, you were def she was definitely going to elbow you in the ribs and move on. Well, I did that once to uh, Robert Sweet from Striper because I thought he was a chick. You did not. So, and uh, it blew a big one that you night. You did not. No, I actually went up Striper. To they were a disillusioning band, dude. I'll, I, they used to play the troupe when they were local before they even did that. Weren't they Rock's deal. Regime? Weren't they called? I did never saw them as Rock's Regime. I literally remember going to a bunch of like Hellion Bitch Witch shows, right? Where the scene was super into Satanic after, you know, after Motley dropped Shout. LA followed, you know, after number of the beast and shout the devil, everybody was like wearing more Satan signs and all that Sabbath devil shit. And, um, right before glam happens before poison comes out from Philly and, uh, striper was giving out black and yellow striped Bibles at all those shows oh, I would for a while that. in advance to promote their gig. And so I went to the show and I noticed the drummer sat sideways, like the guy in night ranger, Kelly Keegy. And I went, okay, they're okay. I get their whole 777 yellow and black attack. But I I was more prone to the bands being, you know, maybe would fuck you with the Satan attitude then. So anyway, I end up in the Rainbow parking lot. I'm only 15, 16 years old. I can't go to the Rainbow. But we'd go to the parking lot. Because if your hair was growing out and you look cool in your spandex and your leather jacket, you might get laid. Tell them you're 18 or 19 and not 16. I end up at the, the after party for Striper up in the hills. 
this crazy dude, Fig. Anybody Fig. who's ever been to the Rainbow knows about Paul Fig. Fig. Paul Fijian, the lawyer for Heidi Fleiss. Oh, see, I didn't know that. With the purple car and the cat on his shoulder or whatever. And he'd always have some big dudes around him that like were supposed to help him gather girls, but they look like gay male models. <laughs> it was very weird. I'm at this party underage, and I hear that these guys from Striper are doing blow in the other room. And I'm like, what? They're in Striper. They can't do blow. You can't, they can't sleep with girls unless they're married. That's not Christian. Right. <laughs> and that was my first kind of like realization. Oh, it's a gimmick. Just like shout out the devil's a gimmick for Motley. Okay. I get it. It's just a gimmick. Well, listen, I never thought in the history of this podcast that we'd ever get a fig Paul Fijian reference. <laughs> oh, dude. I was at the 99 cent store recently. Shows you how much money I'm making, even though I'm recurring on the show Longmire and I got an- where, And where can people watch that show? It'll be on Netflix. I think in the fall, it, the new season is not on A&E. It's on Netflix. And I'm right now I'm in episode two and seven. And hopefully I'll be in a few more playing a bad Indian. Done that before. Right. So um, good thing I'm one eighth Cherokee. So uh, anyway, I'm doing all this shit. I have no money. I go to the 99 cent store all the time. Thank God for the fucking 99 cent store. And I see him in front of me and he looks like he's tore up fig. Well, he looked and I was like, no, he would try to, this was different. He looked that way 20 years ago. He'd have a coat on and you know, he'd look like he was, his hair was crazy, I guess. But I mean, for those of you LA natives, I, people uh, who aren't from LA have no idea who we're talking about. It's there's this legendary figure on the music scene who uh was heidi fleiss's lawyer uh his name real name is paul fijian uh, everyone called him fig and he would drive around to this day i guess he still does I in a so. purple stutz yeah. with a cat on his left shoulder <laughs> yes. at all times a live cat uh yes. and he just uh you'd see him at the rainbow with like ron jeremy always at the rainbow bob guccione uh he's the male angeline yeah, and uh, <laughs> you just, uh, he would have these parties up in the hills with underage girls oh, and, yeah. and young dudes. You know, put it this way, I think Bobby Blotzer said it best about his parties. Uh, whatever you were into was up there, whatever. Um, oh, so Bobby talked about him and his parties. Uh, I think and the rats behind the music, they oh. talked about uh, parties in the hills. Yeah. And uh, I think Fig and Gazzari, Bill Gazzari, yeah. uh, the actual Bill Gazzari would have these wild parties and uh, the house would smell oh, like formaldehyde. That was a big moment in my life when Bill finally introduced me before the band. If he thought a singer was really happening and the band was happening, Bill would come out and his voice, and you know, he'd do that thing. And Bill would say, you know, Foxy's guy's on the strip. And he'd say, for some reason, between 88 and 89, he had an addiction to saying everybody was from the band Whitesnake because it was a reference to his dick is what I got. And then he would say your real thing. So it'd be like, and a lot of the ladies, they're like this Adam Gifford guy from Paradise. Uh, Adam Gifford from White Snake. <laughs> you know, he'd do this thing. He did it for everybody. And the big thing about his club that really made it happen wasn't that the Sharks or Shark Island had been the house band. The big thing was Sunday nights, he had Miss Gazzari's contest. I think it's in the Metal Years movie. Legendary. It's in the Metal Years movie with the guy from Odin. And, and judging and stuff. Randy. Yeah. Randy. So. Yeah. Odin. So <laughs> Odin, nah, nah, there was another band I, I had some issues with at the time. Cause they Can used, we get into they it? They used to throw our flyers off the cars. See, when you were trying to get big, you would go to the farm and you didn't get to see the gig or at Irvine Meadows. You were in the parking lot for three hours, flyering all the damn cars to get people to come to your gig. 
And Odin, I caught somebody from Odin throwing my flyers from my band that we'd spent all our money and broken our back to fucking get down there and hustle. And and he was throwing them on the ground. And uh, we almost came to blows, but whatever. But that was- I, I never, Odin, sorry. I've known, I know a few of those guys, I guess, very casually now. And we have mutual friends, but I always thought they were the epitome of local. I was so not surprised they didn't get big with the Metal Years hype on top of it. Being a gorgeous blonde guy is not enough. Okay. But it was a good start back then. Well, I heard a crazy story about him. I can't even tell you in Bill Gazzari that's bananas. You got to get the Odin guys to tell you that stuff. All I know is that thing you see him doing, judging the contest with those chairs and the girls, you know, wearing, you know, see-through things. And then they bring in real strippers and ringers. And all of a sudden there were breasts and vaginas being exposed and all that stuff. And it wasn't just a wet t-shirt contest, but then there'd be a jam afterwards. Right. And Ron Jeremy always hanging out. Sam Kinison always jumping up to sing and whoever just made it, you know, your Brett right. Michaels, your Janie or whatever, they would jump back up with some local guys that were about to make it, whatever it was. And my time came as paradise in 88 and 89. And, uh, you know, it was one of those moments where you really think, Oh shit, it's happening to me now, Bill Gazzari. Oh, right. you know, he knows, or, you know, and we didn't even have like extra love at their club. Pair of Dice had extra inside love at their club, which means you've spent money for maybe an ad on the wall and things like that. We didn't do that. We wanted to earn all our promotion. Do you wish you would have done it differently looking back? Not at all. That wasn't the, the my problem was the guitar player kept saying no. He said no for three years. And then by the time he said yes, it was a shitty deal out of Germany. That was the problem. The guy I'd started the band with, we owned the band. We were the Paul and Gene of our band because we kept going through rhythm sections. Why? We wrote everything. Guys. Because he kept saying somebody's not good enough or he, he's fucking the girl I like. He, all kinds of immature reasons. And we weren't big on drugs in my band. I would work out all the time. I would smoke pot. I would drink and I would sleep with a lot of girls. And we'd rehearse and write songs like all the time. Somehow I was booking acting jobs and going to UCLA. But was it hard to book acting jobs back then because you the long hair? No, it's always been harder for the dark skin, not the long hair. That's a whole separate podcast. We don't want to talk about race relations in the entertainment in even oh, we voiceover, do, let alone on camera TV shows and or payment structures. You probably haven't seen my IMDb. You don't even know. I've done like a ridiculous amount of work, right? Like unbelievable. I've been acting since I was a kid in the 70s. And are you Adam Gifford on IMDb? I am. And do you have anything like movies or TV shows uh, that uh, are for sale? Or uh... That's the problem. Ever since 9-11, my casting has been very hard um, in my, for me and some of my friends who are mixed race right. and not so easily categorizable. Well, unless you're um, a bad guy in 24. Um, no, they wouldn't let me play terrorists, you know, no matter how good I could do. Out of, I'm in this game Dying Light. I do a bunch of uh, Arab voices, uh, Persian, Arabs, you know, all kinds of things. Cause that's what the game is in, set in zombie game. And, um, uh, I, you know, no matter how, if I'm going, you know, Allah Akbar, I kill you or whatever I'm doing for you, my friend. Oh, buddy, I kill you, buddy. I fucking kill you. Okay. doesn't matter. They weren't going to let me read. You had to have an, uh, a Middle Eastern name. They even let East Indians read, and East Indians are not Middle Eastern. And I remember some of my East Indian friends, you know, and I mean someone who's actually talking like this. This is how he speaks every day, you know. He's American, but he's, he's Indian, and same thing, you know. He's speaking like that. That's not a terrorist. 
they'd be auditioning for that crap, but they wouldn't let me audition. I had really good agent and manager at the time too, post nine 11. And there's just no way. Anyway, it doesn't matter. I don't want to talk about race. This whole thing's going to go. Wee! No, no, that's going to be in the next episode. You know, it, it, it even affected me on the scene in the eighties metal scene. I wasn't another skinny white blonde dude. Right. I didn't dye my hair like Mark Turin or Vince Neil to get over and hide my ethnicity either. Mark so, Turin or David Lee Rodriguez. Exactly. So, and I think he was smart to do that. And I'm a Bullet Boys fan. Maybe I'm not such a Mark fan, but I'm a Bullet Boys fan. And I bought their first two albums anyway with my own money. But dude, I'll never forget going to Rob Cavallo in 1989 because I'm friends with uh, one of Quincy Jones's daughters. So he's like a god at Warner Brothers. She had juice. She gets us into Rob Cavallo. He meets us. He throws the winger demo at us, which has the four singles that are on MTV and goes, they're over. We're like, what? Uh, he's like, he's, I'm like, you just signed Bullet Boys. They had two singles. He's like, they're over. I'm like, what? What about Dio? He's like, Dio's over. I'm like, how can you say this? They're on your label. He's like, it's all over. It's all going to be different in the 90s. Your paradise thing, it's over. He puts our demo in. He fast forwards to our chorus, listens to it for a second, goes, Meh. fast forwards. We'd already sold like, I don't know, like something like 5,000 copies of our demo, you know, playing 300 seat clubs in like four months. That was pretty good at the time. Right. He didn't give a shit. He was throwing it away saying, all this is dead. Everything about you is over. You're too late. It's 1989. Wake up and get ready for the 90s. So that was before Nirvana. That was before the other, the heads of the labels told us, it's going to change. You better get hip. This guy, Rob Cavallo, and you know who he is. He's like a major um, A&R guy who I right. believe is a producer as well. I believe so. I haven't followed his career since he dissed us. I mean, he's no John Kalodner, but... <laughs> But he did all the music you don't like is why you wouldn't, you know what I'm saying? He was, he was a part of helping the label realize Seattle was the next place to get cheaper acts. Seattle but, undercut our, our money by a thousand fold because they had all done little indie things on like sub pop. So label can just pick that up. It's like when they put out lies for guns, it's like, it doesn't cost them anything. The Motley Crue debut, it was done on drug money, right? Isn't that the Nikki Six? Well, I can't keep up with Nicky. Well, but one of his bios says it was drug money and they cut the album. Well, Electra put out the same album and cut a song. So what did they have to pay for? A remix? That Labels like that shit. I heard the Tesla album in my guitar player's house six months before it came out. I don't and know where they think? got the money, but the point is they cut the whole album on their own. What did you think of that album? We loved it. We loved Tesla. We, were, we wanted a Tesla White Snake thing going on, a bluesier... With Paradise, we have some songs like that that I haven't released. There's a little bit of that on the Do or Die CD as well. Now, can we look forward to eventually down the road uh, that Paradise CD? I'm going to put it online on iTunes and the whole thing. What I can't afford to do in my own money, because Eonian Records, who put out this package, they didn't want to re-release the Do or Die album. Why not? I, you'd have to ask Steven. I have no idea. I think it's a great album. Everybody who hears it is like, oh my God, if... This could have been a big album, but I walked um, before all the press and, and all that crap. Anyway, so uh, I'm going to put it out. Yeah, on my own dime. I just need to get this paycheck from my last Longmire episode, bro. Right. <laughs> and I'm going to pay for it using an online aggregate and just put it out there. And hopefully people who are buying the box set or hearing this podcast or, oh, I hope so. Oh, let me just do this. If people really want to go back to the 80s and they want to see a little bit and say, is this guy got anything or was their band anything or whatever? Just go to YouTube and do slash 
Paradise Sunset Strip. That's our um, URL on there. And I have videos from 1989 and 1990 on there. Um, somebody posted some songs off our album from 92. I've got an interview from 88 from a high school. Uh, <laughs> it's so, it's such a, you know. Oh, you would love it. We're all in pink. We we're so glam at the time. Very Vinnie Vincent of you. I never. <laughs> Who might be in Nashville. But that wasn't why we did pink and white. We did pink Come and white because it was the opposite of black leather and denim. Right. You couldn't get more. Dude, you know how many dudes wanted to kick my ass for wearing like pink on the strip? But you were a big guy. Half the reason I worked out. One time we would always go behind the bank across from Gazari's to get high. So one time I go back there and there's like seven dudes in like Slayer Exodus shirts, you know what I mean? And they, they, they're passing a bottle and they're fucking look, you know, whatever to me, like kind of scummy, whatever. And I go back there with my white booties on and my skin tight, pink and black leopard pant pants and my, my pink shirt with falling off the sleeve, like flash dance style. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't really wear makeup. I just wore a lot of pink because it, it would piss dudes like that off. And they're like, fucking fag. We'll kick your fucking ass. Yeah, you probably like bands like fucking Poison. And, and they're talking all this shit. Oh, right. I had a jacket on, though, a white leather jacket because everybody wore black. So, of course, I bought a white one. Trying to be different. Trying to be special. So, I pull off my jacket. I worked out like at the beach. Like every day I was working out or getting laid or doing abs or dancing or, you know, I was always training to be on tour in arenas right. and I didn't want to be out of breath and faking it. And I didn't want to be singing lip syncing. So I broke my back to be in shape, especially because all the other skinny white dudes look like they're on heroin and about to die. So I figured this makes me look different. So of course they, they actually shat. They all got the fuck up and ran out of there. When I dropped my jacket, it was like, I'll kick your ass. You don't know who you, you, do. you know, I'm all my New York came out of me. They're like, right. Oh dude, you're not a glam fag. Sorry. Whatever. And they ran away. And I was like, if I can scare seven Slayer fans into running, I can wear pink for a little while longer and get away with it. Well, I love it. You, you know what our motto was? I do. I do yeah. Know. I'll kick your ass and fuck your girlfriend. Then I'll wear some of her clothes on stage. That's a good motto if you can pull it off. When we were glam. And then when the labels gave us that ultimatum, dude, we changed everything. We wrote a bunch of new songs. I, I threw out all my glam shit. I threw away my Aquanet. <laughs> and I started wearing black. I got like black leather with like steel and Harley Davidson shirt. And like we came out with all these heavier songs. And we really thought our audience was going to feel betrayed. Didn't. Those fucking labels were right. God damn it. We started drawing dudes. And not just all chicks. But was there uh, like they were so right? And you know, I we got even bigger. That's what happened when we went black leather. When we went Hollywood underground. Well, I mean, you know, this is the part where I want the audience to go. I want to hear more. I want to hear more. So this oh. is this is where I usually end it. So they go, Sorry. no, no, no. I want I want to hear Adam come back. But oh. just so just a few more minutes because uh, yeah. you're nice enough to uh, do this. Was there a video or a a newer band uh, toward the end of the glam era where you guys were like, this is too much, like too much oh, pain. Oh, you want me to say it? Who it is? Well, I mean, yeah. I'll tell you who it is. And the drummer's great drummer. He played with me in Love Child early 2000s, slamming drummer, but it's Pretty Boy Floyd. 
When Pretty Boy Floyd got signed in 88, and I'd seen them locally when they came out and how they came out and played for kind of a short time to get a deal. And then I heard rumors about how they got a deal that they matched the label's money. And I don't know. I don't know what's true or not true. I wouldn't be surprised. But when they came out, Leather Boys with Electric Toys, to me, that it had jumped a shark already. Right. And like I said, that's 88 when they're getting signed. And they're doing a cover of Motley even, right? Toast of the Town, I think, is on that album or something. I was like, dude, you don't just do Motley Crue from 81 to 83. Now that they're ripping off Guns N' Roses on the Girls, Girls, Girls album, wearing leather and denim and being tough guys again, you don't now steal their shit from five years ago. To me, that was the height of local and lameness. And I thought, I don't really want to. The joke is we went glam as they got signed. Right. We were not glam our first year. We didn't have an image. We didn't know what the fuck we were doing. We were trying to be classic and different and not local and not glam. We wanted to be foreigner-ish meets Van Halen or, you know what I mean? We wanted to be on the radio. We wanted to, you know what cover we picked? Everybody would do a cover as an encore. What is everybody picking? A Motley Crue song, you know, <laughs> something so obvious or Aerosmith or we picked an Eagles song. <laughs> Nobody was doing that. We did a heavy version of Life in the Fast Lane. They killed but why did my guitar player want to pick the Eagles? They're not local, dude. Right. They've outsold everybody. Literally. Sold, they're like diamond artists. They've sold a ridiculous amount of units. They used to play the Troubadour. I didn't even, you know, they were a local band. And they they broke out. Yeah, they were mellow, peaceful, easy feeling and all that. But they also had some songs that rocked when Joe Walsh was in the band. And they did arenas. And they still can do arenas today. And they've lasted. We wanted to break out, not just be, you know, pretty boy Floyd. I yeah. can tell you a story connected to them too about Ugly Kid Joe. We, we're the reason we helped Ugly Kid Joe start. Please do. People Please will do. never, we can say that on this one. You can say what, well, yeah. I've got that story and I've got how we inherited the Motley Crue Rat Drum Riser, which was in the Live Wire video and in Round and Round. And we thought that was another sign we were going to make it. I mean, those, Jesus. Let's end with those two stories. <laughs> Those two stories? Okay. Um, well, the, the Motley Rat one oh, is probably quicker. No, no, don't rush. I'm in no rush. Wait, what's the other one, Earl? If I mind. Just uh, no, it's all good. It's just, um, okay. Um, there was a guy named- Ugly Kid Joe and you had the uh, oh, Motley Rat It all happened in 88, in 88 that time. We got this great lockout in the Valley. It helped us become successful. We had all our after parties there. We, It was great. Um, we, but it came with this riser. That was three tiered with all these giant, you know, headlights on them. I don't know if you remember the live wire video. That's I do. They shot it before they got signed, by the way. Electra didn't pay for that video. And um, round and round. It's the same black drum riser with three tiers of headlights. And you can walk up. And of course, I'd jump and do David Lee Ross splits off. And we'd get on it and do choreography on it and all this. But it was made out of wood and it was huge and it was hard to handle. We needed like four roadies to, to, to put it together. And you couldn't get it on stage at a lot of places. Like it was too small for the Troubadour. I uh, barely would get on Gazaris and I'd have no room to move. The Roxy and the Whiskey. And of course, once we did the Country Club, it was awesome. The footage, you can see this riser on our YouTube, you know, dot com slash Paradise Sunset Strip page. All that, there's footage on the riser and the lights and jumping. So anyway- the guy who owned it was a guy named Paul Schenker, an obese dude, really weird. The rumor was he came up with the idea of pre-sales. Oh, okay. A, a notorious figure. And allegedly he had applied it to the country club. 
I don't know if when it was Wolf and Wrist Miller's Country Club, whatever, they were having trouble with local bands really packing it in. And this guy came up with the pre-sale idea. We can afford to pay the headliner if we screw four or five bands with 100 tickets a pop. So this guy was also the guy who ended up offering us our first deal because he got a he he was in a position as a signatory doing A&R for a subsidiary of MCA. And he offered us our first deal and offered to sell us the riser, which meant we could now take it out of the rehearsal studio and start bringing it to our gigs. And we took the riser because we loved Motley and Rat. Oh, who doesn't? But we uh, we declined on the $60,000 deal on a subsidiary label, which in retrospect, I wish we had said yes. And I argued for it, but my guitar player, we already had lawyers telling him, no, 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 no. That's a good Kiss song. No, no, no. <laughs> Off a crazy night. So that's the Motley Rat riser. You get, oh, but I painted it pink when we went glam. That was the big no-no. It was black with chrome, metal, right? Rat, Motley. I painted it bright, fluorescent, hot pink. And I spray painted my boots that color too. And uh, that kind of was when we got big. So a lot of people think of us as this pink drum riser and pink and white and smiling and happy and girls and choreography paradise. Because literally eight months later, we were black leather and it was a different sound and we were heavier and everything had changed. Anyway, the pink drum riser that we should have never painted pink and it was probably a huge mistake to paint Motley and Rats drum riser pink, but later we had to go back and paint it black again. But it was the time. I mean, who knew? We knew. I'm telling you, we knew glam was over when we went glam, but it but made did us you want to believe a it? pair of dice. It did you want to believe different. that, though? I no, mean, like- I, we knew it. We knew it. We knew it. Dude, you don't, when Sweet Child of Mine came out in 88 and they finally broke after touring for a year and a half, and we were like, oh shit, they took all their hairspray out in the video. Did everybody see that? They're all wearing denim and leather. They look like a bunch of dirty bikers. We knew, you knew that it was over, and that's 88, but we were selling out. We had just started to sell out wearing pink and white and smiley and happy smiley paradise. We had songs like live for today and don't say goodbye and songs about love and songs about, you know, and three part harmony and the dude, we're drawing 95% girls. Oh, I have moms and their daughters coming up to me and they're, and they're thinking it's okay to bring their daughters to my show. I wasn't using that much profanity. It was like we had created this commercial behemoth and we were like, paradise has got to be pink and white and palm trees and happy. And, you know, once we got to the majors, they were like, you're too late. You can't do that shit anymore. You shouldn't even be called paradise. Anyway, so the other story is, so in that year, when we painted the riser pink, started to headline, open up for Shark Island, the next time we played the Roxy, we headlined and packed the fuck out of it and sold it out. It's great. Uh, my guitar player had his best friend from high school goes to Santa Barbara, the college up there. He tells him he's got a band. Are there any songs Adams doesn't like? Because Matt would bring me the, the riffs and the melody, you know, and then I'd write lyrics and melodies. Yes, there were songs I was turning down. So Matt would give them to his buddy, um, Eric, who was the original guitar player. They didn't have the name Ugly Kajo. Okay. They were doing mostly covers, but they'd obviously decided they wanted to be a, a real band with originals and they didn't know how to write. And the guy, who, what's his name? The singer who stayed in the whole time. Whitfield Craig. Yeah, Whit Whitfield, Whit was in the band and everything. He was the front man at the time and he was writing the lyrics and melodies for them as far as I know. But I don't even know if Whitfield knows because Eric might not have told the band that, hey, these are stuff Paradise is not using. You understand what I'm saying? 
Especially when the irony is they wanted to be the exact opposite of everything glam and happy and sunset strippy. And here they were getting throwaways from paradise. We we weren't quite pretty boy Floyd, you know, or whatever. That's a good thing. Tough for Taz. We weren't quite that, but we were happy commercial opposite of what they were going to end up being. What about sleaze bees? We, yeah, we weren't sleazy. I don't, I'm not into the sleazy thing. Anyway, I'm not a fan of the word hair metal either. So one of the songs we wrote like a verse and a chorus, verse and chorus on, right? We got stuck on the bridge in the solo was heavier. Even when we were glam, Matt was bringing heavier shit. It was a song called ghost town. And I felt like that's how things are going to go. And this is before Rob Cavallo dishes, you know, disses our shit and the labels tell us you're going to have to, but he writes something that's in that welcome to the jungly kind of heavy, big, dirty. And I'm like, this is the shit. Well, this motherfucker gives the song to Eric without telling me and forgets that he did it. And we're like, well, it's not really fitting our headline happy paradise set. We're going to take this song ghost town out. And then we finished it a few months later. Okay. So then we start playing it in our set. And it starts to become popular. When we switch to Hollywood Underground style, it becomes the opener of our show and becomes like our most popular song written up in the review, da-da-da-da. Ghost Town is the face of the new paradise. Well, by 1990, now, two years have gone by. And that band in Santa Barbara has gotten their shit together. And they're pretty good. And they've written a bunch of songs or whatever, right? They come out to fucking play. They want to play with us because we're a big headliner. Eric asked my his best friend, can we open for you? Sure. He, they opened for us. They opened for us. That might have been the show. They came up with the name Ugly Kid Joe out of, the, out of their ass just to shit on Pretty Boy Floyd. Right. I'm sure you know that story. So I don't know. Maybe they'd use Ugly Kid Joe before, but I don't think they'd really played in LA when they opened for us at the Whiskey. And we got them a really good slot knowing they're not really going to draw from SB. Right. But we would pack it so it didn't matter and they were friends. But this motherfucker comes out and sings my ghost town. My hook, my melodies and lyrics, whatever Matt had given them. He didn't just give them the song. He gave them what we had worked on. So they're calling it Ghost Town too. And my audience goes, ape shit. And is fucking pissed with this opening band, Ugly Kid Joe, because they're fucking ripping off Paradise. They've been playing Ghost Town for two years. And I'm backstage and somebody comes running in and tells me. And Matt's like, oh, dude, I forgot, bro. I gave him the song in 88, bro. Whatever. I never thought they'd play with us. I never thought they'd, you know. Six months later, we have a record deal. And we're producing it with Jay Baumgartner, who has this huge studio NRG that Love Hate was doing their shit there at the time. Ugly Kid Joe steals our bass player at the time, Cordell. They only have an EP deal. They want Ghost Town to be the first single, not everything I hate about you. And we're putting out our album and we're about to cut it, you know, and we're like, we think it's going to be our hot song that is going to cross us into the 90s and erase our glam past because it had balls. Right. And so like fools, what do we do? We negotiated ourselves out of an EP that came out and allegedly was the highest selling EP at, to that point in the history of recorded music. You can look that up. The Ugly Kid Joe EP. Well, no, I believe it. It this broke is- some record or some shit. And we were like, wow, we were morons. We used, we fought with them and lawyers and took our song right out. We could have had a piece of that album. And we, uh, these are the kind of decisions we made. I don't know if that story entertained you or not. It was long, but bums uh, me out. But uh, but Ugly Kid Joe basically they got started from a bunch of songs I didn't think were good enough to be Paradise songs, and that's the joke of it all. And then they passed us by right while we were cutting our album too. They were much more in sync with the '90s than we were going to be. 
Well, <laughs> yeah. how screwed up is that? Now, maybe Wits never heard this and he's going to be like, fuck you. I wrote that song. Da, 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 da. I don't know what to tell you, but well, I have proof because uh, we ended up, you know, copywriting our songs and all that. Well, stuff. Welcome to Hollywood, Adam. <laughs> 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 welcome, to, <clears throat> welcome to the real world, baby. Uh, no, uh, well, I've got acting stories like that, too, where they told me you can't wear that on the show. And then they hired somebody else and gave him my right. they put a ponytail on one guy to rip off the look they told me I couldn't have in the movie. Well, what are you going to do? Well, it's Hollywood. Yeah, with Hollywood, if you people who uh, aren't familiar with our business, music, comedy, acting, it's <laughs> it's the greatest business in the world, but it's the worst business in the world. <laughs> like a project me and Adam met on. Uh, oh. You know, it's a, a great, great job, uh, but, uh, but I still haven't been paid. Yeah, so it's it's like two a, months later. It's not all it's cracked up to be. <laughs> but Adam, before I let you uh, not go, but uh, Go today. Where can people find you? Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Oh, I am on Twitter, and I'm trying to do it more. The Adam Gifford. Yeah, because there's there's Adam Giffords everywhere, and so they, they're not me. <laughs> so it's T H E A D A M G I F F O R D on Twitter. Yeah, and Facebook is Facebook. Well, maybe you want to check out the Paradise Dash Do or Die page. Um, I you know you can hit me up whatever, but I'm sure there's a dozen Adam Giffords on Facebook too. So I think my URL is G Adam Gifford because that's actually my legal name, and I went by that as an actor for like 20 years. But of course, having a first name as an initial in the digital age is suicide. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then Instagram, do you do that? I don't do Instagram. You should because with the pic, I'm telling you, right, I'm not trying to give you career advice, but with the pictures, I know, I know. With the I pictures know. you have just from back in the day, they would get hundreds of likes. I know. I put them on Facebook. I put them all over. I put. I post yeah, up a bunch of. Everyone's on Instagram now. Oi! Another yeah. thing I gotta do. Periscope too. I mean, it used to be Vine. Now just everyone... go to the YouTube page. <laughs> yeah, and which is what's the YouTube page? Oh, it's just the band one I was talking about. I haven't started posting up stuff for me because there's too many. I can't figure out what to talk about. <laughs> All right, well, but it's uh, YouTube.com/slash Paradise Sunset Strip. I mean, I didn't even get to ask you about the singer from King Cobra. So uh... you know who who was the singer from King? Well, Cobra? it's it's funny you say was. Uh, it was Mark Free. Now it's Marcy Free. Wow. I remember when they came out with the pink. It's true. They had kind of... Were they after Vinnie Vincent Invasion? They were around the same time. I mean, right. their big hit was uh, 1986. They did the theme song to the movie Iron Eagle. I was up for that lead role at that time. Because you do look like Jason I was not going to cut my hair. That's for damn sure. And I did a movie with him uh, a few years ago. Uh, what's his name? The lead. Um, Jason Gedrick. Jason Gedrick and I did a movie called At the Sinatra Club that came out in 2010 that's on, should be on Netflix or something. You do look like him. Well, not when we stood next to each other he, he, and I told him I was up for it. He was like, really? <laughs> but I mean, they did the uh, song Never Say Die. Yes, and, I remember uh, that. It's a great video because they do the. This shows you in the eighties they put money into the. They had Louis Gossett Jr., who was the flight instructor in the movie Iron Eagle, act with King Cobra in, in the video. It's w just, wasn't somebody from Bullet Boys in King Cobra? Um, I wanted uh, Johnny, uh, the guy from Wasp. The oh right, there was a guy from Wasp, right, um, right, right, and somebody from um, Carmen Apice, obviously. Slaughter, uh, right? No, it was. Uh, it, keep talking for two seconds. <laughs> uh, Carmine, uh, Carmine Apice, or is it Apice? Uh, well, 
I call it apathy, but uh, and what does his what does his brother say? <laughs> uh, a PC. Oh, okay. All right, it's all over the map. King Cobra, dude. You know, you okay? You want to really blow your mind? Tell me the name of the band the guy in Kingdom Come was in right before that MTV played like their video like three times, like they did for. <laughs> uh, I hold you on. You know what I'm talking about? I do, but here I'm just why this is on my mind. Here are the members of. Uh, well, they had a lot of members here. King Cobra. Uh, we had Carmen the Peace, uh, Mick Sweeta. Mick Sweeta is in Bullet Boys. He's yes, the guitar you player. You are right. Uh, David Michael Phillips, oh, Johnny Rod. Johnny Rod was in Wasp, right? Yes, okay. and uh, well, they had some. Uh, Paul Shortino was in for a brief period. He was in time. Rough Cut. That's but, that's when uh, I first heard of Shortino. Jakey right? e. Lee's uh, first band after Rat, but uh, ah. So that is, uh, I just, I'm obsessed with the singer from King Cobra because, wow. and this, we'll end on this just because, you know, I think when the, uh, the gas tank was running on empty for a lot of these bands, we talked about them, they uh -huh. changed their image. You know, uh, I know the guy from Britney Fox, the singer, Dizzy yeah. Dean Davidson, he cut his hair, changed his name, uh, you right. know, Warrant did like what I would consider a grunge album, you know. Yeah, like when they tried to adapt to the 90s and keep selling, you mean? Yeah. Kind of like when Kiss did a disco song in 79. Written by Desmond Child, thank you very much. <laughs> that is a good song. And a lot of rumors about how uh, Paul and Desmond originally uh, found each other, but that's for another <laughs> podcast. I didn't know anything about that. Uh, paging David Geffen and Brian Singer. Oh, oh, oh. Uh, oh stories um, I've heard about uh, that human being. Well, that's a whole. But then uh, you know, so you think, wow, that's a pretty drastic. Kiss did Carnival of Souls, you know, which is a great Stone Temple Pilots album. Um, I, I I heard a few songs and was not going to go any further on with Carnival. I mean, I think it, I saw that tour actually. Well, they didn't actually tour behind that album. Something at that time. That they was were playing revenge. right before. No, 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 no. They played right before Carnival. No, Carnival of Souls was much you, later. I'm telling you. No, Revenge was 90, 91, 92. Right, right. I and remember then, that. Uh, I think. But Carnival of Souls is way later, dude. Not, no, not well. It's it was not 94. 90s. Really? Because here's what happened. Wait, is, okay, and then they put out that the the the, the MTV my unplugged thing. Well, no, no. Here's the chronology. The original guys. The and chronology. Then they did a tour. Here's how it broke down. Revenge, ninety one, ninety two. Wow. And that was, uh, I, I thought, a very good album. Vinny wrote three. Songs. I think Revenge was a huge album for them. I, I thought it was like classic Kiss. Kane Roberts uh, co-wrote the song "Take It Off," which you know, oh, a I didn't good know video. Okay. Um, and uh, so then two years go by. There were so many leaked versions of Carnival of Souls out. They released it in like 94. Oh, that was the thing. Okay. So it was out when they did the Unplugged show in 94 on MTV. Well, it, uh, the Unplugged show was like 95, I think. Was it? And so then that reunion full tour didn't happen until 96? Because I went to that Oh, so did I. I mean, my ex-girlfriend, who uh, still to this day manages Motorhead. Um, oh, I know why I'm. I'm. My brain is off. Sorry. Yeah, you had a Motorhead shirt on when I met you. That's how yes. we ended up That's talking about this in the up. first place. You opened the door to the metal, and uh, then I step right in. Um, that you know what it was. They hadn't put out another album before they did that full makeup tour. Right. So to me, it was their latest album. You see what I'm saying? Even though. Maybe that's a stretch, but it's because it was the 90s. And at that point, I think I would have to go to Warehouse Records and I'd have to ask them, can I listen to this? Because I don't really want to buy this thing unless it's got a couple good songs on it. Remember? Oh, yeah. They had, yeah. Listening they had the listening stations. Long before we could just go online and see if I want it. But well, then I they would put, do that. 
I think uh, Kiss did only this. You know, it's hard to describe my love for Kiss, but this describes Kiss. Kiss. Uh, who does? I mean, listen, say what you want about them. I'm not saying you, but like you know, they they have their fair share of critics, sellouts, the Kiss condoms, the and then Gene cups. has things that come out of his mouth that sometimes make his greatest fans like myself uh, have a different opinion. Uh, yeah, and uh, you know, I don't really Sadly. look towards uh, Gene for uh, business. He was advice. my first hero. I think he was every like I'm 46. You're a little younger. <laughs> okay. So to to me, Gene was like literally a live superhero. Paul too. Would uh, but Gene and and look, some kid. I my dad was supposed to spend time with me. Leave me with this like weird, unpleasant older kid. He takes me down in the basement. He's got Kiss Alive one, and he's got Aerosmith Rocks. I, I was probably eight years old, I think, eight or nine. And I that changed my life. That was it. I was in I, both those albums. And I saw Gene with the blood and the flames and I'm just, and the, and their whole vibe. Both those albums have like a lot of black and like chrome and steel, you know, Aerosmith Rocks and Kiss Alive 1. Oh yeah. I I mean, that's before your time. No, no. Well, for I, me, it was Alive 2. I love Alive really, 2. I which, told you, I went to the, they toured behind, I saw it, but those two albums are when I decided I'm clearly... A rocker. And Alive 2 is about as alive as Rock Hudson, if you know what I'm saying. That's unfortunate, but I still think it's a great album. But like, that's what bums me. I even like the songs on side four. What, you mean Bob Kulik's guitar playing? I didn't know that. Bob Kulik did uh, all the uh, guitar parts, except for Rocket Ride. You got to feel for him. He's so screwed. Why didn't they just ask him to put on Ace's makeup? No offense, Tommy, but come on. Well, I mean... uh, I, I think Tommy does such a good ace. He does. He does. Yeah. And I, I told you, I'm a black and blue fan, but still, Kulik kind of just got kicked to the curb, and he's really, if he's been a part of them that long, that's just like, wow. Well, I think his problem, and this is just from things I've gathered through inside sources, whatever mm-hmm. you want. He's, he's not a yes man. Oh. He would definitely say, hey, Gene, why don't we play it this way? Mm-hmm. And he, that's just not something you do. Tommy is. Um, I see. I've met him a few times. Very nice guy. Yeah. Uh, but I think he's more of a yes man. Mm. And okay, Gene, you know, mm. hey, uh, just mm-hmm. shut up, Tommy, and play Ace's parts. Mm. Or make it sound like Ace. Like mm. Sonic Boom. If you listen to Sonic Boom, which was... Uh, I think more- I went online and listened to three or four right. songs and said, nah, I can't buy this one either. But, but the guitar playing, to those of you, you know, who don't know anybody, you think, oh, wow, that's Ace. Because it's got the band. Really? He has that, that 70s oh, Ace well, approach? I think that's what they tell him. Uh, you know, I know huh. he was first uh, discovered on the Kiss scene because uh, my ex, uh, the great Shelly B, okay. uh, legendary in the L.A. music uh, promoting uh, machine, mm-hmm. uh, she managed him in a Kiss tribute band called Cold Gen, where he was ace. I think Jamie St. James might have been. Oh, right, right, right. They used to like play FM stations. Yeah. And so. uh, When that, well, we could do a whole episode on tribute cover, the whole trend. I can't believe I'm agreed to do one now. But it's great money. I mean. uh, Yeah, but I have a big issue with the the death of original music and being able to make money playing clubs and touring because of the, the proliferation of these tribute bands who like go into the rainbow and act like they sold out. Because they tribute a band that's big, they act like they're bigger than the other tribute bands. There's like a ridif- ridiculous hierarchy and delusionary. <laughs> I don't well, care how much money you get paid. 
You're still copying somebody. You're not creating anything. It's much harder to create from scratch. Oh, my God. Absolutely. I mean, uh, but there are some great uh, Kiss tribute bands. There's the <laughs> one that all four of them dresses Gene called Gene's Addiction. The you midget know. one. Yeah, Mini Kiss. Yeah. And I'd like to see one with all hot chicks, personally. I haven't seen that. Uh, well, the Donnas are pretty close to, but they don't do a Kiss tribute. They're not doing but, Kiss. Oh, okay. But they, uh, they have... Uh, seen them live. A lot of metal... Uh, uh, roots because they do like Judas Priest covers and uh, they did a few rack covers. But listen, we could talk. I want you to. I know. I gotta back. get. I gotta leave you alone. No, no, you don't. I could go on for the next five hours uh, <laughs> talking about. Uh, it's an honor to Let have me tell some- you how I heard the Bon Jovi demo on the radio in New York when I was home for the summer when I was a kid and Runaway wasn't even a. Yeah, singer. yeah. She's a let's little talk runaway. About, let's talk about how Mark St. Vincent was in a band called White Tigers. Well, I like how you combine names. Kiss. Mark St. John. Uh, Mark St. John, excuse me. Mark Rest St. John. in peace, Mark St. <laughs> yes. John. I like that album, Animalized. Uh, album. You know, it's my favorite Kiss uh, guitar sounding album. You know, I just love the guitars on that album. I think Bruce Kulick played the solo on Lonely as the Hunter, though, in full disclosure. <laughs> wow, you really know. Wow, interesting. Well, I have a lot of time on my hands, you know. <laughs> Comedy's a great gig because you perform for about, yeah, a half hour tops every night, and then you've got all day to look up, you know, who played on Lonely as the Hunter off of Animal Eyes. So do you like that metal show? I don't because... Really? Uh, I Let me say this about Eddie Trunk, and this probably be a good way to end it. Okay. Um, I appreciate him carrying the torch for a genre of music that not as you know not many people do well right now i mean uh the other day on his show he was playing like a a newer rat song and not round and round or lay it down but like yeah like the new latest album yeah off of infestation uh so i appreciate that very much so i don't like how he interjects himself into like i went to the first rock lahoma and okay. in 2007, prior Oklahoma, it was like mm. the Woodstock for 80s metal. I know all about it. Yeah. Um, and I thought me and my friend were like, we should go to this one because it's the first year. All these bands, Rat, Quiet Riot, Twisted Sister, Y&T, uh, Queensryche, Jackal, mm. they're all going to be happy <laughs> to be playing in front of crowds again. Right. So it's going to be a great, fun show. And yeah. then every year after that, they're going to say, well, look how much money in the crowd we played in front of that first mm. year. We want more. And that's exactly what happened. That is what happened. It yeah. disintegrated to, you know, just D-level bands headlining. Bands that were also were not from those eras at all started to do they started to get a rock. Line. Yeah, they it, it, like new metal bands were like yeah, uh, even bands that I don't know what you would call them. So uh, <laughs> I loved going to that that first year because it was just yeah, it was awesome and uh, you know I guess I should have taken that deal with retrospect to to be the nemesis of Pair of Dice in two thousand eight and I could have played Rocklahoma and been a part of your whole. All right, we're gonna end on this one because it's just popped into my head. Um, I love a good marketing uh, mind. Gene Simmons, although Mm -hmm. I think he overdoes it. I am amazed that Quiet Riot got their documentary on Showtime. I haven't, I watched a piece of it. I haven't watched the whole thing. Frankie's obviously a smart guy. Um, Like I said, they were called Dubrow when they got the deal with Pasha. You know, it's like he wasn't even being Quiet Riot because he didn't want to ride on Randy Rhodes being in Ozzy's coattails, which I thought was cool. And then, all of a sudden, obviously, somebody said, you got to put this album out as Quiet Riot. And you got to put it out because Randy Rhodes is right. a huge star. And, you know, da, da, da. so I don't know how Frankie Benali ties into Kevin Dubrow's 
you know, creation of this thing and carrying it over from the seventies into the eighties. I, I don't know. I mean, just for me, it was, I like the first hour, although I'm a huge fan of the, uh, or I shouldn't say huge fan of this guy, but, uh, Ooh. well, I, it's, I try and explain that I, <laughs> there was a club on Santa Monica Boulevard in Crescent Heights, which is now a Russian deli. Uh-huh. Uh, it's called the Starwood. See, I never got to come to Starwood. I moved to LA and it closed. Well, it, it, well, the owner of the Starwood is such a fascinating guy, a, a man by the name of Eddie Nash. Oh, yeah. I, who, I've if heard you've of uh, seen the movie Boogie Nights, when they robbed the Arab guy at the end, yeah. that's Eddie Nash, basically. Right. And he gave Van Halen uh, a, a pretty big push in the 70s at yep. the Starwood yep. and a quiet riot at the Starwood. And the original version of Doc and Exciter. Yeah. I think played yeah. Starwood. Uh, and uh, he Cheap Trick played there a lot. I mean. Sister, which became Wasp pretty much. London, which was, I think, Nikki Six's first uh, uh-huh. band. London. And really. he was just such a uh, instrumental member of the music community. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I've, I've often wanted a documentary done on him. You should do it. That's a great idea. Well, it's too to dark that. because it, he was such a like. He, well, don't he, do it on him. Do it on the Starwood. But I mean, you'd have to. It was. I'd love to see that. Frankly, the star. That was what I missed when I hear Slash talking about getting into the Starwood as an underage little local kid. I'm like, oh man, I was like three, four years too late. Damn it. Because his story was, he came over here from Palestine, had a hot dog stand in the '50s, and then in the uh, '60s became part owner of the Star. Would, uh-huh. bought the guy out and he was like the number one drug dealer on the west coast he owned like seven or eight nightclubs and he was into anything that made money he had gay clubs he had uh, where jimmy kimmel is now uh filmed he owned that club uh-huh. strip clubs that he was called a, hollywood live back in our, yeah. our day on the strip yeah uh, we played owned, there yeah, I mean, he just so that everyone seems to have a six degrees of separation to Eddie Nash. He owned uh-huh. uh, the Seven Seas, mm. uh, the Odyssey. Well, on, I see. That's why you'd want to do the doc on him. Berlin. I don't know. I say just focus on the Starwood. Have you ever gone on YouTube and looked up Starwood videos? Oh, it's great. I uh, mean, I've done that. And just to see if they're, I'm like, is there Van Halen footage? I've seen Quiet Riot footage. But. There was footage, uh, bit grainy, be it uh, from uh, in that documentary from the Starwood and uh, with Halen. Uh, no, with uh, Quite Right. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. No, there's some of that on YouTube, too. But uh, I, I just, I don't know if there'd be enough interest. Uh, I went to Metal Day at the US Festival, dude, and I was one of the few people who was already rocking a Motley shirt and the first album hadn't sold. And they dressed in their Shout at the Devil clothes, but that album wasn't out yet. And Joe Walsh was supposed to be in the first slot. And Quiet Riot replaced him. Cause, Did you know that? I, I Cause, remember. Because MTV got hot on the on the album all of a sudden. So all of a sudden, MTV gets hot on Quiet Riot, and they're coming out of left field. They're they're passing Motley up. But what was he doing on Metal Day? <laughs> because he's in the Eagles. <laughs> no, because he was in the James Gang, right? Uh, right. <laughs> I don't know, man. Well, listen, I didn't book the festival. Why not? Well, you didn't. Because I, I want to talk about missing persons that day. Uh, no, no. I didn't go to the New Wave and the Punk days, and I was with David Lee Roth when he talked shit about The Clash. I was like, that's right. Yes, sir. David Lee Roth. He's, he's like, there ain't no iced tea in this bottle of Jack Daniels. <laughs> he tried to pick up on me once at Crazy Girls, but really, Are yeah, you fooling around. No, no, no. I and I, I you no, know, yeah, I want, I want. Oh, oh, well, here, I did not know that this all these is good, years, and I did not know that. This is a good way to end this podcast. <laughs> we're never gonna end, we're but we have to end it here. We're gonna keep going because. Uh, <laughs> 
I had yeah, this argument about how by David Lee Roth is. Oh, damn, Earl. Well, I had this argument about David Lee Roth and Paul Stanley. Long story short, oh. uh, it's often been rumored, and I don't care what they are. Okay. Yeah. I mean, as you know, this is the literally. I live on the gayest street in the city. Pretty close. No, it's there's nothing close to <laughs> Larrabee. Trust me on that one. <laughs> um, and. It's always been rumored about Dave and Paul's sexuality, and uh, uh-huh. my one friend, who's slightly homophobic, was like, well, if David Lee Roth or Paul Stanley have been with dudes, that means they're fags. And it's like, dude, David Lee Roth, Paul Stanley, around the same age, they've been famous for literally 40 years. Wow. Yeah, think Let's about just that. say they've slept with the first 30 years of their life in terms of their rock stardom, 100 girls a year. That's a pretty conservative estimate. I think that yeah, is conservative, yeah. Let's just cap it at, let's say both guys slept with 5,000 women. They probably got so bored with women <laughs> oh, God. that at that point to get off, they had to stick their dick in a cheese grater. Oh, God. That's not gay to me. Now, if you sleep with one girl and then you're like, I got to have a dick, that's gay. <laughs> your thoughts, your final thoughts. Yeah, well, I know a joke that goes along with that, but I'm not going to tell it. Hey, I'm a big Rob Halford fan, and I knew he was gay long before he came out. I mean, he well, sang he in some of the Judas Priest songs. I'm a huge Queen fan. Uh, you know, I'm a huge Elton John fan. I, I don't really care. Um, but I must say that I think that's why I like Gene's character a little more than I liked Paul's character. Right. I got the kind of androgynous, effeminate thing he was doing even as a child. And I liked the guy who was, you know, covered in spikes and spitting blood and shooting flames with dragons. Well, let me ask you a question. You don't have to give me a number. I've, even though I was in paradise. Right. <laughs> not, <laughs> Which doesn't sound like blood and flames and dragons, but. Listen, it's all good to me. How, how many, how, would you say you slept with hundreds of women? I guess it doesn't matter anymore. Um, uh, uh, you a I, lot. Right, here's the truth. I don't. Hundreds means more than uh, than two hundred. Yeah. I I broke. I I remember counting over a hundred when I was twenty one, and that's and when you're my now band in your was late thirties and selling out. But when I was twenty five, I all of a sudden swore off one night stands and did I change my whole life? Da, da da da. I've also had many monogamous relationships. I did not cheat. So and now I'm almost like a celibate monk. It's unbelievable. Uh, let's end the podcast there. I mean, we got a, we got standards that people want to hear about <laughs> pussy and double teams and bukkake. Well, I can tell you about when I used to behave that way. <laughs> but I mean, as many women have you have slept with, yeah. you're still not at the point where you're looking at a dude going, "Yeah, I could use a dick in my ass." Um, that's never going to happen to me. And I'll be honest with you, that's because something horrible happened when I was very young. So there's, right, right. there's no way in hell that a hairy dude is ever going to work for me ever or a young hairless dude. No, thank you. No gracias. Just for me, I'm super straight and it's always going to be that way or I'll be abstinent. And for the record, uh, inappropriate Earl's views are not uh, accepted or condoned. It's just my opinion. Uh, I'm, <laughs> I'm listen. I go to two gay gyms, uh, so and I just downloaded the Village People song "Milkshake." So I'm no homophobe. Uh, this <laughs> this might be one of the longest episodes of Uh-oh. inappropriate. Earl. You make Stevie Rochelle seem quiet. <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> by the way, Stevie Rochelle, a shout out. He's not necessarily a sponsor of the show uh, like Mr. Piercy, but he does provide. Uh, free of charge, the opening and uh, ending music of the show, the great tough song, Forever Yours. Uh, right on. Pl- so please. Hey, support. you know, my bass player, Danny Wilder, who's now passed on, he joined Tough. 
Right after the original, after Matt left. Uh, I thought George uh, DeSaint. No, he's the guitar player. Okay, George. my bad. The, 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 the bass player, um, uh, Chasen. Um, Greg? No, yeah. that's Badlands. Uh, uh, oh, my God. Steve. I, no, that's I'm the sorry, dead hockey player. I just player. blanked on his name. Oh, terrible. But when their bass player left, their original guy, the guy who's, um, it, it, my bass player, uh, joined uh, Tough and toured with them in uh, 91, I think it was. Well, here's a quick game for you uh, listening at home or at work uh, with a calculator. See who had more member lineup changes. Uh, tough, uh, L.A. Guns, uh, or uh, Dokken. They, they really... Uh the winner gets a free inappropriate Earl T-shirt, uh, which aren't in production at the moment. Cool. But uh, maybe we'll have Adam sign a uh, autographed picture of uh, Kane Roberts or something. <laughs> Guys, inappropriate Earl, you know where to find us: uh, iTunes and SoundCloud. And uh, once a week, I am not. It, I don't know if it's uh, set in stone, but I also. Uh, co-host uh, Piper's Pit podcast on the Podcast One Network with the wrestling legend Rowdy Roddy Piper. So uh, check that out if you will. I have nothing to sell, uh, but leave a review on iTunes and stuff. Uh, you know, there's a thousand podcasts out there, so it helps. And uh, I don't make any money on this, guys. I do it because I like exposing you guys to people like Adam and and uh, my comedy friends who you might not have been aware of so uh spread the word you know tweet favorite wh whatever you can do it helps me out and that helps me get better guests so that makes it better show for you so thank you adam very much thank you for having me it was a ball and watch out for the jellies uh tyler the creator's new cartoon on his app uh golfwang.com we're both doing voiceovers on that yes yeah. i play berry jelly and i hope i'm allowed to say that i think i am i don't think i could say i well oh. whatever you said <laughs> well i can edit that part out then i don't want to piss off tyler the creator he's got a lot more followers than i do on twitter <laughs> tyler the creator great guy follow him on twitter he's only got 2.3 million followers <laughs> i've got uh it just cracked four thousand. so uh sorry tyler if i wasn't supposed to say that i don't want any problem from you or your you know posse so uh i love you guys adam will be back again uh got some nice guests coming up and next week i am uh guest hosting tom green lives talk show don't know who the guests are yet but you'll like it see you